Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Anne Watson and John Mason. Now, I started the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast over two years ago purely so I could talk to and learn from my heroes. And I've been ridiculously lucky with the guests who have been kind enough to give up their time to talk to me. Dylan William, the Bjorks, Doug Lemoff, Chris Bolton, Bruno Reddy, the list goes on. But I'll tell you what, Anne and John have been at the top of my wanted list for some time now. I finally plucked up the courage to ask when I saw John at an event in London, and I am so glad that I did. Anne and John's influence on mathematics education is unrivaled, and their knowledge and experience is phenomenal. Indeed, in the time since they agreed to talk to me, to the interview itself, I've been revising like it was my finals at uni. The only difference being, I was slightly more sober this time. In their incredibly distinguished careers, John and Anne have found time to be the authors of one of my all-time favourite books, Questions and Prompts for Mathematical Thinking, and the co-authors, along with Chris Bills and Liz Bills, of another, Thinkers, Activities to Promote Mathematical Thinking. Both of these wonderful books are linked to in the show notes, along with everything else we discuss in the interview. And when I announced on Twitter that Anne and John were coming on the show, the reaction was incredible. In fact, it was summed up nicely by the following tweet from Anushka Rao, who said, Give them all my love all the way from India. In this land of gods, they are still my main ones. I could not have said it better myself. So, in an incredibly wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and much, much more besides. Anne and John's discussions about their careers to date lead to some fascinating tangents about the nature of instruction and the importance of promoting mathematical thinking for all children, something that is a recurring theme throughout the interview. About an hour into the interview, we turn our attention to variation theory, as I ask what are the key principles of variation theory and why is a careful consideration of variance and invariance important when putting together examples to introduce concepts and exercises for students to complete. I explain how I find it hard to get the balance right between too much and too little changing in my examples, and we discuss the concepts of going with or across the grain. We talk about the importance of encouraging students to form expectations about answers, and the beauty of a mathematical surprise. I love this next bit, why don't Anne and John like the question, what do you notice? And what question do they prefer instead? And as the co-authors of Thinkers, I had to ask what advice would Anne and John have for a teacher listening who wanted to improve their questioning ability. I've heard John say that lesson planning should be mental imagery, not just writing lesson plans. So I had to ask him to expand on that, and it is fascinating. And then Anne gives possibly my favourite ever interview to the question, what do you wish you'd known when you first started your careers that you know now? And then finally, Anne and John reflect on recommended books, followed by a brief discussion about what they thought about my book. Now, I didn't see this one coming. My heart was racing. And well, I'll leave you to to find out how it all turned out. 
Now, sometimes when you meet your heroes, it does not live up to expectation. Fortunately, the experience of talking to Anne and John for over two hours was better than I could have hoped. I loved the first half of the conversation, hearing about the careers, experiences and beliefs. And then I loved the second half where I tried really hard to drill down into the practical takeaways so we can all learn from their experience. Hopefully you'll listen to all of it, but it definitely is a podcast of two halves. And as ever, I will reflect on some of the many things I've taken away from this interview in my takeaway at the end of the show. Now, speaking of my takeaway, having listened back to this podcast, Anne and John disagree, can you believe it, with my belief concerning what I consider to be the winning combination of direct instruction versus what I call in my book, Intelligent Practice. So I thought it was only fair to include their comments in the show notes, followed by a brief brief reply by me, so you can listen to the interview, read them, and see who you agree with. I think the safe money's with Anne and John. And just now, the usual plug for my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, which contains an entire chapter on my personal take on the importance of the choice of examples and practice questions we give our students, which has been heavily influenced by the work of Anne and John and the principles of variation theory that we discussed throughout this interview. Anyway, it will be criminal of me to deprive you any longer. And so it gives me the greatest honour and pleasure to introduce two legends of the world of mathematics, Anne Watson and John Mason. Just a quick word of warning, there's an irritating scratching noise that makes a regular appearance throughout the podcast. I suspect this was down to a microphone issue at John and Anne's end. I've done my very best to clean it up as best I could, and I really hope it doesn't detract from your listening pleasure too much. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so we're going to start, as we always do, with your math speed dating questions. So I don't know who wants to go first on this, but I'm going to ask, what is your favorite number and why? Well, uh, I thought about this for a bit, and I don't have a favorite number, but um, I've alighted on 1,001. <laughs> All right, go on. <laughs> and the reason is because it looks completely innocuous, but it's the product of three primes. Ah, nice. Yeah, and do you know off the top of your head what those primes are, John? I'm putting you on the spot here. Uh, 7, 11, and 13. I checked it just a few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's excellent. How about you, Anne? Do you have a favourite number? Um, well, I've written down 67 because I think this is such a daft question. That <laughs> I'll put 67 because it's the first number which, when it's spelled out in English, is an anagram of another number. Oh, say that again. So that's great, huh? <laughs> it's the first number that, when you write it out in English spelling... 67 is an anagram of another number jeez are you going to uh, keep us hanging on to see if yeah, we can yeah. figure out what that is yeah I'm I like keep that. hanging on with that and the, the and then i thought well actually what i often go for is 47 48 49 because that's a bit more serious in terms of number structure that's a nice triple because the One's a prime and one's a, a, a very highly composite number and one's a square number. Very nice. And I'll tell you what, Anne, if you, if you think that's a daft question, they're only getting dafter from, from here on. We may, <laughs> we, may, we may have peaked there. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, what's your fa- what was your favourite topic in maths as a student, both of you? Well, for me, it was group theory and ring theory 
and um, with a, a close run second was finite state machines and uh, more generally the foundations of mathematics. Jeez, that, that's high level stuff that, that John. And what, was there anything um, kind of, uh, you remember like the mo- a more kind of elementary topic that hooked you in with maths or was it only the more challenging stuff that, that really kind of lit your flames? Well, I enjoyed lots of things as we went past them. Um, I had about a half a year of problems of the basically of the form three men dig a ditch um, so wide, so so deep, and it takes them so long. How many days will it take? You know, etc., cetera, yes. etc. Cetera. Um, and I I worked out how to do all of those questions without any trouble, whereas my colleagues uh, all struggled with them. Nice, um, so, but it wasn't really. I, I don't. I, I'm not sure I would call it my favorite, but. Um, it was. It's one that I remember. Let's put it that way. God, it's superb. And how about yourself, Anne? Uh, well, I tried to think at school level, and I think probably what I really enjoyed at school level were things where you had a long, long string of something terribly complicated, but after you'd worked out what was really going on, it would, it would simplify down to something, you know, a nicely structured, perhaps symmetrical expression of some sort. And I used to really get a kick out of that. Nice, fantastic, mm. superb answers. And my final speed dating question is: If you, if, what would you like to do if you weren't involved in kind of mathematical education? Is there any anything else that tickles your fancy? Well, I uh, I sometimes wonder if I wouldn't have enjoyed um, running a bookstore, but um, uh, but I'm very bad at being patient and waiting for customers to come through the door. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure I could have, could have coped. But that's in contrast to Anne. Well, this was really funny because I couldn't think of anything. But when John said a bookstore, that was my first career. My first career was in academic bookselling. So maybe that's somewhere underneath all that is the reason why we're together. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Superb answers. Well, well, that teases up nicely, actually, just to just to discuss how you got to where you are today, because uh, you're two of the kind of leading figures in, in the world of mathematics education. And it, I'd just be fascinated just to hear how you got there. So, again, whoever wants to go first, can you just talk us through uh, the kind of steps in your career, if that's all right? Well, uh, I'll start. Um, it was a completely – there was never any question but that I would carry on from high school and go to university. And I'd been um, getting special mathematics instruction while I was at, at school. So I did a bachelor's degree – um, initially, mathematics, physics, and chemistry, and each year I dropped one, so dropped chemistry, and then I dropped physics, and then had pure math for, for two years. Then I did a master's course at the same university, University of Toronto, um, which involved um, some work on foundations of mathematics. Um, and then I went to Wisconsin to do a, a doctorate initially in foundations, but the the foundation's lecturers all left and went to California, and I couldn't afford to follow them, didn't want to. So I switched into group theory, um, and then I was told that the problem I'd posed myself was too difficult and I should drop it. <laughs> so I went into a lecture th- that I had never heard of before called combinatorics and um, was able to pose a lot of questions in almost the second or third lecture, I think. Um, my own questions, which I then worked on and finished a thesis. Um, Really significant event for me. In order to pay for myself, I was a teaching assistant, and we got shown uh, Polya's film, Let Us Teach Guessing, and that released in me the way I'd been taught by my teacher 
uh, and I started teaching differently in uh, when I was teaching the undergraduates. Well, can um, I just ask John just on that? What, what what was what was the different way that you were teaching before compared to how you then started teaching? Well, in the modern vernacular, I think it's the difference between direct instruction and somewhat indirect instruction. Um, so instead of just giving people lectures um, and telling them what was the case and getting through, I had to get it through a, a, a chapter a week because I was in parallel with about 50 other lecturers. Um, uh, it was in the film, Polya elicits thoughts and conjectures and talks about making conjectures and, and uh, what's the evidence for your conjecture and now can we um, can we justify this conjecture can we and and also generalization so he was bringing out the various ideas in his books uh, in the film and um, and so that's what I started doing so on Monday and eventually I got to Monday Tuesday Wednesday I would work my way and then um, perhaps a bit of Wednesday and Thursday I would finish the chapter in a more direct instruction so that we'd finished it. And on Friday, I did review questions for the chapter. And that's how I that's how I taught in Wisconsin. Fantastic. And can I, can I just ask, this is probably getting a bit too deep too soon, but, but did you find that that approach was something that, that worked for students because they already had a solid foundational knowledge in the basics so do you think that do you think that approach is would work if if the basics weren't in place or would a kind of more directional approach be needed to to, to help students develop that fluency in the basic skills that they need in order to access the kind of problem solving and, and high level thinking and ability to conjecture if that makes sense well um i occasionally i did um some second year students but mostly i did first year students these were students who had not done very well in mathematics at high school, uh, because they were in state, they were allowed into the university. They had to take this course, they had to pass it, but they got no credit ultimately for doing so, apart from being allowed to stay in the university. If they failed it, they were out of the university. So um, and basics, I think, isn't a word that I could say <laughs> they had much grasp of. Right. Um, and in terms of popularity and so on, uh, my review sessions were always um, much, much bigger than the number of students that I actually had been assigned. Um, so people came, you know, people came to me um, when we were re reviewing for exams. And I started off with trying to work my way on Monday and then promising to finish the chapter Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we got it to the point where, as I said, um, we could work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, mostly my way. Um, so students began to appreciate that I was trying to get them to think about it. And um, I, I make no claims about the specifics of the pedagogy. It was um, but it was trying to get them to think about things before I told them uh, what was next. That's fascinating. That, and that's definitely something we're going to we're going to dig into um, later on in the interview. And apologies there, John, I interrupted you. You kind of uh, tour, th tour through your career. So, um, yeah, what happened next? After, well, after I got my doctorate, um, I came across the ocean to this country, um, mainly to travel, and discovered that I was running out of money. Uh, and um, so I noticed an advertisement for the Open University. I applied and was offered a job, which I was a bit worried about taking because they told me the date on which I had to retire. <laughs> which was a bit early when you're only 22 or 24, I guess I was, something like that. Anyway, so I was at the Open University in the mathematics. Um, in fact, I was, a, I was employed 
um, under the guise of non-numerical computing. And I, I reckoned I knew each of the words. I knew how to make this. <laughs> I knew what numerical meant. I knew what computing was because I'd done some. Uh, I'd done a lot of programming uh, as an undergraduate. Um, it was just the beginnings of, of undergraduates having access to machines, and so I, I got myself involved in that. Um, anyway, uh, after about four or five years, I found out. A, uh, well, I'm not sure of the timings of this, but anyway, at some point, um, my friend Johnny Baker. Uh, went off to the States and engaged in the USMES project and then came back to the UK and um, wanted to initiate a course in what we then called real problem solving. And that was the beginning of the setting up of the Center for Maths Education. And um, and I was involved in his in the initial meeting with some teachers to see whether or not the, the whole project would be viable. And I was uh, on the edge of the first course that we wrote and um, fully involved in all the subsequent courses. So I switched into mass education. And at that point, what I did was I I tied up in a box, I, I put in a box all the preprints I had of mathematical, my mathematical research and, and interests and um, put a string around it and told myself that if I didn't open the box at the end of a year, then I would chuck it. And stay in maths education, and that's what happened. Jeez, that's absolutely fascinating, that John. And and how about yourself, Anne? Can you take us through your career? Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll try and skip uh, across uh, some of it and jump on the important bits. But you know, even at seventy, you don't necessarily know what have been the important bits mm. in your life. And um, I was I was pretty good at maths at school. I was pretty good at most things actually. I was one of those horrible people. <laughs> and uh, and it was my my maths teacher saying to me, um, I think it's wonderful how there is infinity in the smallest thing and infinity in the greatest thing. And I remember her saying that. And I remember that kind of lodging in my brain like a diamond and thinking, whoa, what's all this about? Well, I didn't really know that it was about maths philosophy. So I went off to university to do something else, hated it, went to work in a bookstore, did quite well in the book trade, but wasn't intellectually satisfied. So eventually I went to the Open University to do a maths degree, a pure maths degree. I didn't meet John there. I was a a student at the Open University. And um, and because of the way that the Open University ran their courses, for the first probably year and a half or two years, I was actually revisiting stuff that I knew, but that I knew in a different form. So revisiting stuff that that I already had some, I thought I had some understanding of, but approaching it from a very different point of view that involved me doing some hard thinking. But that hard thinking um, forced, well, I was curious. So I tried to match it up to the way that I already knew things. And that, I think, was really formative in the way that I see mathematics and that I see the learning of mathematics. So I got a maths degree, and then it was a time when there was a great shortage of maths teachers, and a local school that was a very sort of purpose-built, very forward-thinking, comprehensive school um, got me to go and teach. Well, I hadn't got a clue. I had no no teacher training whatsoever. Um I really didn't have a clue. 
and went into the school and they used a work card scheme where individual students ploughed through an individual pathway through a collection of work cards and all the teaching on the work cards was what you might call direct instruction but I kind of want to query that word I want to query that John used it but it is such a vague all-encompassing yes. term that I don't think it's terribly helpful but we'll, call, we'll talk about direct instruction because you imagine the kind of most mechanistic teaching and uh, and I just sat there and what's the point of me having a <laughs> if all I do is sit there and then a, a child brings me a card and their work and says I finished this card and I and you're supposed they would say to me because they knew I didn't know what I was doing they said you're supposed to sign it off <laughs> can, can I just ask Anna this are these the smile cards or is this a different no, different set? no 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 these were the Kent Maths project right okay and the difference between the Kent Maths project and the smile cards was that the Kent Maths project were all written by curriculum writers whereas the smile cards had some writers but also teachers could submit their own ideas and right. develop their own cards which got absorbed into SMILE. So the SMILE scheme was more collaborative, but the Kent Maths project um, was kind of much more done by other people, and here it is. So, um, so, so I began to ask questions. And they said, you're not supposed to ask questions. <laughs> you're supposed to answer them. Yeah, these, these are, these are yeah, really self-motivated, highly argumentative, well, uh, very articulate secondary students who've been brought up through school to ask questions and to be articulate and to make decisions. So um, anyway, after a bit of a while, I thought, no, and, and, and I was going to be inspected by the local advisor. I had no mentor. I had no subject mentor in school. I had no input from anything whatsoever. So the guy comes because he's supposed to check up whether this teacher is worth employing or not. And I decide to teach a lesson. Well, I haven't got a clue what a lesson <laughs> Um, and I knew that we were sort of getting close to exams, so I better do some fractions. So I taught a fractions lesson, and this is also uh, in answer to the, can you recall any lessons that you've taught that went wrong? We must query what we mean by going wrong, but certainly this lesson wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> and I realized after about 10 minutes that this was not how to teach. And what I had been doing was what my maths teacher did for me. Now, obviously for me, she was a really good teacher. But when I thought back, I thought, no, actually, she was probably not a good teacher. She was teaching the top set in the grammar school. And not all of us got our O level. So how could she have been a good teacher? And what, what were the characteristics of what she was doing, Anne? Well, um, very, um, it, I, I don't want to use these words that set up dichotomies. Mm, yes. She would start a lesson by coming in, writing on the board what the lesson was going to be about, um, drawing a diagram if she wanted a diagram, um, writing up a problem if she wanted us to start with a problem. She would do all that in silence, 
so that we would settle down, which being a top set of a grammar school, we did do. And, um, and then she would uh, start to talk through what she was doing. And so this is this, and so that is that, and this is this, and that is that. And then when she got towards the end of the problem, she would then ask us, so what happened here and what happened here? So it was a bit like um, if you were thinking about how to find the area of a rectangle that was three by four, you would do all the talking through yourself. And then when you got to the end bit, you would say, and so what we're going to do now is multiply three by four. Can anybody tell me what that makes? Right. So nobody works on area. Nobody works on rectangle. Nobody works on the array. All you do is the easy bit at the end that you can maybe already do. So I think that's what she was doing. But I was in a world of my own. Because when I say I enjoyed structure, I really enjoyed um, doing algebraic, answering algebraic questions and trying to guess in advance which ones were going to work out neatly and which ones were going to be a great long line of stuff. And I was privately enjoying that. And I would call that my private maths because it, there wasn't any space in the classroom to share that maths, to, discuss, to talk about whether that was interesting or important or whether it was just some weird thing that Anne liked. And um, so it was private, really. It was, uh, And I think that um, one of the things that we came up with yesterday when we were talking was that one of the things that we can both see ourselves doing in the way that we work, the things that we write, and the way that we run workshops, and the way that I taught in school eventually, was making what the, the um, oh, what's the word, um, the sort of natural mathematics thinker, um, what they do privately, bringing it out and making it public mm. so that it becomes a thing so that if you've got an algebra exercise and some of them reduce to one term and some of them don't that you talk about it so that there is a difference here you don't expect everybody to find it satisfying but you show that this is a thing that might be important by talking about it and 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 that's that's I suppose making the private public is something that um, I've developed throughout my career. So this fractions lesson was just awful. And <laughs> it, the inspector who was thinking, well, you know, she's got first class maths degree, we can't get rid of her. So uh, this was an awful lesson. What do I do? He said, why do we have fractions in the curriculum? And at the time, this was the, um, uh, where were we, beginning of the 80s, I think there was a view that doing fractions, having fractions in the curriculum, that there wasn't really much point to it. And that's because the curriculum at the time focused on adding and subtracting fractions and doing calculations with fractions, rather than focusing on what fractions mean and how they relate to number, and how they relate to division, and how they relate to ratio, and those kinds of things. So fractions as um, a mathematical structure, rational numbers as a 
mathematical structure, rather than um, doing blooming calculation. <laughs> can, can I just ask it at this stage, because this is fascinating. This. So, so the, the ins- how exactly did you teach this lesson that was a disaster? And it's, it's quite interesting to me that the the person inspecting you here is, seems to have quite a deep mathematical knowledge themselves. What what kind of advice did they give you on your lesson? So if you could first tell us what, what did this lesson actually look like that, that was a disaster? And then what was the kind of feedback about how you could improve it? I didn't get any feedback about how, <clears throat> how I could improve it at all. Um, it was just that question, why do we have fractions in the curriculum? And I think that was really interesting in retrospect, because I did have to go and think about it. And I think what he realised was that I had absolutely no support in school for improving my teaching or even thinking about my teaching. I didn't even know how to think about my teaching. I didn't know that you could think about your teaching. (laughs) I I thought that you showed people how to do things and you did a few examples and then they did some examples and they would have learned, wouldn't they? And that was fine. And um, and what he did was he, he began to get me to think about the conceptual connections in what we do, what mathematics is, what is mathematics and conceptual connections within that. And, and he, I mean, I'm not, I, I never furthered the conversation with him. Um, but I think I probably was doing, a, in the end, a reasonably good job because I was invited to be in workshops and work parties in that county and that sort of thing. And then shortly after that, um, the department became better staffed with people who, had taught and had had some training and had read and also a local branch of the Association of Teachers of Mathematics. And so I began to be immersed among people who really thought about what they were doing. And I began to learn what there was to think about. Because the support I was getting in school was only about behaviour and uh, classroom management and how to run group work and how to deal with uh, the kids who always answer first. Those sort of generic things that go across all subjects. So I was getting some help about that, but I wasn't getting any help about what does it mean to think about mathematics, to learn mathematics? Because unless you know what it means to learn mathematics, how do you know how to teach it, and unless you think about, well, what is mathematics, and what is mathematical understanding, how do you know how to how to teach it? In retrospect, it was the crummiest way to get <laughs> teaching. It was so random and so happenstance that things all fell together. And then after about three years, I was offered the opportunity by the school to take a year off and go and do a PGCE and come back. And um, I didn't take it up because I didn't couldn't lose the income. But uh, I don't know whether things would have been different if I'd done that. Um, I think they might have been different, but I don't know. You know, how can you how can you know? Can, can I ask when was it that you came to the position that I think I've heard you express, which is that if you if there's a behaviour problem in the class, then look to how you're presenting the mathematics. Well, you see, they used to say, because it was a 
it was quite a progressive, thinky sort of school. They used to say um, the real answer to behaviour is in how you're teaching. Mm. But I didn't know how to think about my teaching. Mm. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, so, you know, and also there was the issue of, you know, if the kids everywhere else in the school are ploughing through work cards and you're trying to do mm. something which is more collaborative and more public um how how do you help them make that make that shift mm. especially if the the predominant theory in the school was um it, it group work mm. so it was very it was it was difficult yeah um oh, so, just, oh, sorry okay. go on no you go john uh, i just thought it was um while Anne was talking one of the things that popped into my head was something that I really enjoyed uh, in the near the end of school, and that was the fact that the expression x cubed plus y cubed plus z cubed minus three x y z actually factors. Mm. I thought that was wonderful. Oh, I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> 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 that, that is a good one. Can, can I just ask um, Anne on this because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. The the kind of effect that the switch in your way of thinking about teaching had on your students, because I can imagine if, if these are kids who, who see maths as right, I'm going to get a card, I'm going to plow through a load of questions, and then I'm going to get that, that feedback from the teacher that's, that, that kind of says I've done well because I've got through two cards this lesson and I've only made one mistake or something like that. That That's how they start to see maths. And you're obviously trying to bring a, a quite a radical shift into play where there's more discussions happening and, and kind of arguably they're not making as much visible progress because they're not plowing through two entire cards and getting 20 questions or something like that. So what was the reaction from the kids and, and how did you kind of manage that? Well, I want to just correct an impression I may have given. Um, I was trying to do this privately behind the door of my own classroom. <laughs> but it yes. wasn't until um, we had a change of leadership in the department um, and there was a decision to go for more investigative teaching and more group work and more, you know, real group work rather than, you know, there was real group work and, and, and working investigatively um, and working on um, complex problem solving and extended tasks, that kind of thing. And that change happened right across the whole department. So I wasn't leading that. The head of the department was leading that. And we were all trying to do it. So it became the culture of how maths was in that school. And so I wasn't leading that and I wasn't on my own. It just it happened to fit, fit with how I was thinking anyway. And it was such a relief to get this new head of department who was saying, Come, let's do this, let's do this. And whoa, yeah, it was like, for me, it was like lighting a firework. It was just, yes, this is the kind of thing that, that I've been looking for. So it was a culture right across um, our school that that was what maths lessons were like. And it was vibrant and there was noise and there was chatter and there was students work pinned up on the walls. And uh, it was, you know, the, the, the whole atmosphere changed. And the... Um, the uh, forms of assessment that we had at the time were beginning to be more open to coursework. So then from that school, I moved to another school where I was head of department. And it was a school that had just committed itself 
to doing uh, an ATM GCSE, which was 100% based on coursework. Jeez, so, fucking heck. So, uh, yeah, well, you see, you don't know about that. Because <laughs> we were so busy doing it that we didn't really write much about it. We didn't, we didn't research it. We didn't report it. We just got on with it. Though there are some articles in mathematics teaching about it. Um, I think Mike Ollerton and Dave Hewitt wrote an article about it. But mainly it's in folk, folk memory, memory. But um, what we did was every bit of work that the students did in years 10 and 11 went into a box file. Every bit of work they did. And a lot of those bits of work were extended explorations. So, for instance, um, you know, the very well-known paving stones around a pond, that kind of thing. Um, that, that would be, for, for some people, that would be become a two- or three-week investigation with all kinds of developments and changes and ramifications and generalizations and generalizations of generalizations and, and layers and layers of mathematical thinking. And, and I find it so sad sometimes to see paving stones around a pond done in 50 minutes mm. because all the possibilities that there are there that could extend from that get it getting lost. So okay, can I just, sorry, Anne, to interrupt, can I just ask, ask on that one? Because so I, my first two years of teaching were the last two years that coursework was a um, compulsory part of, of the GCSE, but it was only, I think, 20 percent, something like that. And I, I find it amazing that, um, well, it's, actually, it's not surprising, but it's quite sad that um, sometimes when I'll give a talk or a workshop to teachers, they're not aware of some of these amazing coursework tasks that there are out there. And if, if you get hold of the, um, I think on in, on Edexcel's website, they have all the, their archive tasks. Um, they're absolutely phenomenal because they had to be designed in a way that students of all abilities, if that's the right word, um, or achievement levels could could access and make some progress through them. So you, you have tasks like the paving tiles and diagonals of rectangles and staircases and all these where you've got kids who in the old grading system, grade G, uh, grade E students could access it uh, for a long period of time. And it had to go right up to your A and your A star students. So there are absolutely wonderful tasks. And I, I just wonder, just thinking back to this, and I've never heard that before, that there was a 100% coursework qualification and um, did, did did you were you teaching mixed ability classes and was did you have any kind of ways that worked to help kids all kids access and kind of get something out of these activities was that was that it was that a challenge or did the activities themselves lend themselves quite nicely to, to that way of teaching well, uh, I'm not going to ask that question directly, answer that question directly, because I want to sort of move on from that, really. Um, yeah, it was all mixed ability. Um, when, when, when we weren't allowed to do 100% anymore, we had to reduce it to, I think it was 50%, first of all. We used to set the students, um, in, uh, round about March of year 11 involving them in the choice of what level of GCSE they would do. And then from the March to the exam date, they would be prepared for the exam part of it in um, in sets. That's what we did in our school. Not everybody did that. But that was because um, 
the 100% wasn't allowed to continue. And then later on it went to 20% and, and then, uh, you know, the impetus was lost really. But, um, but I want to, um, really talk about sort of what happened next because this wasn't, Mike Ollerton and I wrote a book, Ollerton and Watson Inclusive Mathematics, where we described the way that we taught. And at the back of that book, there are some of the tasks and approaches that we would have used. And also in Joe Bowler's book, Experiencing School Mathematics, you see very similar stuff going on. Now, there's a problem here. <laughs> is that um, if you look at Joe Bowler's study, and if we look back on what, if I look back on what I did in my school, I know that our students were doing better than students from similar socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, I, I've always taught kind of the wrong side of the tracks, as some people call it. I've always taught children who are from uh, very, very mixed backgrounds, that includes lots of disadvantage, low aspirational households, that sort of thing. <coughs> and, and our kids did better than kids in, a, in other schools who were taught by going through SMP booklets or, or an, and traditional exams. Our kids did better. But I wasn't interested in that so much as why weren't our kids doing as well as the middle class kids up the road? Right. That was not, I was getting dissatisfied and didn't really know what to do about it. Um, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to my second in department because he was absolutely champing at the bit to become a head of department. He was really ready for that. Um, and I'll, I'll try and get a head of maths job in a different school that doesn't have as many social problems and where I can think about well, what, what is really going on when children learn maths. But while I was doing that, a job came up and I moved into academic life. So since I've been in academia, I've really been focusing. I've done lots of things, but my main focus has been what does it mean to learn mathematics well um, in lower secondary? I have done loads of other things, but that's been something that I always come back to. And I think how I would describe what used to happen in investigative work um, and what happens in a lot of group work is that some children... Um, come in uh, over what's now called low, uh, what's it called, low threshold? Yes. Yes. Some children come in at low threshold and they do something low threshold-ish and they complete the task or they contribute to the group and they go out of the classroom, but their ways of thinking have not been changed. Right, I see, yes. So we were good at bringing everyday thinking into the maths classroom using it in the maths classroom to do something numerical or spatial, quantitative or whatever. But we weren't so good at offering all students the forms of thinking 
that are only available in mathematics. So we weren't, that was totally dependent on the teacher being there at the right moment to have the conversation with that child that would help them think in an abstract way or would help them think in a structural way or would help them relate what they were doing in this task to something they had done in another task. So if I can characterize it really badly, um, the, a very, very well-known task in those days was to redesign the star car park. Yes, classic, a classic. <laughs> okay. So if you set a, a, a mixed ability group out to, to redesign the staff car park, some children are only holding the rope, and they're still only holding the rope at the end of that project. Yes. Some children are measuring, and they're still only measuring at the end of that project. Some children have been doing different stuff, some, you know, a whole range of things in between. Some children have got some kind of notion of, oh my goodness, look, if I hold one end of the rope and I walk around with the other end, I make a circle. And that's where they stop. And some children might be doing scale drawing and they're still doing scale drawing at the end of the project. And where is the shift in mathematical thinking? Where in that project has anybody done anything more than complete a task using the kind of thinking they can already do? Yes. And that yes. is the challenge, and it still is the challenge. Oh, that, well, I, I was hoping that you were going to give me the solution there, because that, that's, that certainly that certainly is the challenge. And you see this a lot in project work, and... One of the biggest questions I get asked, and I think it's on a lot of teachers' mind, is this differentiation? Is is how do we how do we come up with tasks, activities, and forms of instruction that that challenge all, all students? And how do you do that? How, how do you how do you stop students stopping essentially? Or or what I tend to see quite a lot is just practicing what they can already do, or practicing what the, what they're what they're already good at. How 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 do you push on their mathematical thinking? Well. <clears throat> I'm very tempted to suggest, and it came up earlier when um, I think you, Craig, were talking about um, uh, was it grade E students? And, yes, and yes. So on. Um, the way I think about it is that everybody who gets to school has already displayed the powers that they need in order to think mathematically. And if my attention as a teacher is not on the task itself, but on what I can do to get to provoke or to invoke or to evoke, whatever, whatever you're into, um, students to make use of those powers and in making use of them to bring them to the surface, as Anne was saying earlier, making the implicit explicit, uh, so that then you can, by reference to those powers, help the kids um, uh, uh, extend, uh, strengthen, um, vary, make use, make more use of those powers. So for me, for me, it's about the mathematics. It's about the mathematical thinking. Um, and if my attention is on the mathematical thinking that's going on in the classroom, then I can work with almost any task. Really? Because I was going to say when you were saying that, John, I was what was springing to my mind is that the task has to be the key. The task has to be the starting point without the right task, without the opportunities for these different 
levels or types of mathematical thinking, then as a teacher, you're kind of fighting a losing battle because there isn't the opportunity for students to develop or display that mathematical thinking. But, but would you argue that regardless of the task, it's still possible for the teacher to do this? Uh, I, I would. I, I don't claim that I've always managed it, but I, I claim it is. And um, I, have a, I have a couple of slogans uh, that go with it. I have quite a few slogans. But this, this one is, it's not the task that is rich. It's whether the task is used richly or whether the pedagogy is rich. Nice. And I keep coming down to, um, you know, well, later on we might talk about variation. Yes. Variation in itself is simply um, a, a feature that people put on a collection of tasks. I'm looking out the window and I can talk about the birds that are flying about, you know, because that's what human beings discern. But what really matters with the task is what opportunities, what pedagogic opportunities are taken. And sometimes to take a pedagogic opportunity means to do nothing or to do something quite um, that looks orthogonal to what's going on for the students. But it's the whole point is to bring to the surface the use of their natural powers. And I want to put the, the mathematical side of that, which is also to bring to the surface pervasive mathematical themes. That, for example, the notion of doing and undoing. Every time in mathematics you find you can do something, there, you're, it's open to the question, okay, if I knew the answer, what was the question? Or yes. Can I, yeah. can I can you just give us, can you just give us an example of that, John? Um, well, very simply, uh, what's three plus four? Uh, seven, I hope. Well done. Okay. <laughs> now, what is seven? Ah, nice. I see. And, yes. And, and uh, do it with two numbers. Oh, let's do it with three numbers and two operations. Oh, and where are you going to put the brackets? This is mm. the undoing. Almost always opens up huge creativity. It is the case that I can ask an undoing question in primary school for which there is no known answer. But that's okay, because you can always leave a mathematical question with, I've got a conjecture, or, or even, I can't, make, I can't see how to cope with this. But the point is you're opening up creativity. And, and Kelly, just, 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 just on that, John, as well, because um, I just released a, an interview just before this one with, with Helen Hindle, and we spoke a lot about, she, she runs the Mixed Attainment Maths Conference, yeah, and we yeah. spoke a lot about the use of these kind of activities in mixed attainment classes now in the two schools i've i've taught i've always taught in sets and only as part of my um, ast outreach work i've been lucky enough to to teach mixed attainment uh, groups but i've always found it a struggle and i'm just wondering with the with these kind of activities how do you ensure that again that all different students are challenged to think mathematically um, and that you don't lose students, and at the same time, you, you're still offering enough challenge for other students, if that makes sense. Because that, that's always been the big difficulty for me that I've found. Well, um, can, can, I, can I come in there? Because um, for that reason, I wouldn't use redesign the car park um, anymore. And there's a lot of things that I have used that I wouldn't use anymore. And that's because it's not at all clear to me what in uh, what the mathematical purpose is. Apart from showing that you can use a lot of maths when you're organising the car park, what, what, what moves on from there? What is the learning? So I'm not saying that doing the car park task 
is completely pointless because you might want to do it in order to coordinate lots of maths that you've been doing and to show that something to give people a glimpse of how mathematics is used in design or in engineering or in planning or in surveying or something like that but that's not the same as 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 um that's learning about mathematics that's not learning mathematics that's not developing individual students so um so if we take the car park task and we take the, oh, look, if I hold one end of this robe and the other person walks around, we get a circle. That, that, that for me, would be sufficient starting point for lots of thinking about, does it matter how, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about very young children here, does it matter how long the rope is, does it matter who holds it, you know, get some of that stuff out of the way first, or then what happens if both of you walk? Yes. Well, if both of you walk, keeping the rope tight, then all kinds of things can happen. Oh, this is a bit too muddly, we can't think about it. So what else can we fix? Well, maybe we can fix the midpoint. Well, what happens if we fix the midpoint and both of you walk? Or one of you's got to walk along the fence, so you're walking in a straight line. The other one can walk anywhere. What happens? So those sorts of things. But thinking, thinking in terms of controlling the variables. But you have to be a bit careful because controlling variables is what you do in science not mathematics in itself the mathematics is in the relationships and if you if you're thinking as as i suppose what a lot of our teaching was like was assuming that only some children would appreciate the underlying relationships well that's bonkers because (laughs) go back to what we were saying about conjectures and when can people can make conjectures? And do people have to know the basics in order to have a conjecture? Yes. You imagine a child who's got two piles of of uh, of sweets in front of them, and that one pile's got three in, and one pile's got four in, and they slowly move the ones from the three pile onto the four pile. What do they get? They get seven. So you restructure it, and you say, well. What do you think will happen if instead of moving the three sweets to the four, you move the four sweets to the three? That's our inviting a conjecture. Now, you can't tell me that young children can't do that, because they can. They might think about it a bit, or they might say something like, well, the red sweets will get muddled up with green sweets, or something like that. Yes. But once you know what ballpark you're in, no, if I move the three sweets one by one into the four pile, I get the same answer as if I move the four sweets one by one into the three pile. And that can arise from a conjecture. So the way that lots of parents talk to their children, what do you think will happen if? What do you think will happen if? Well, what do you want to try? You know, those sorts of things. That's conjecturing just as much as is it going to be a right angle if I do so and so? You know, these, so conjecturing can be built in to teaching all the way through. Mm. And if you watch, if you watch primary teachers working with children, they're doing that all the time. They might not be doing it in maths because they might not have ever seen it done or experienced it in maths. 
but they're doing it in everything else they do with their children. So what do you think would happen if, is, is, the, is the basic, you know, conjecturing sort of, sort of question. And that, sorry, sorry, Anne, to yeah. interrupt. can I just ask on that? Because I'm, I'm always looking for the kind of practical takeaways and, and I'm always thinking with these interviews, what does this look like in the classroom environment? So if I'm asking these conjectures and I've got a class, it could be mixed ability, it could be set it or whatever. What are we hoping? Are we kind of giving the students a bit of time to think in silence and then discuss with the person next to them? Or is it a straight kind of shout out what you think you know and the teacher kind of directs it all? Well, what have you found to be the most effective way to get the most out of these conjectures to promote this mathematical thinking that, that we need our students to have? Mm -hmm. I, I, can I just in, in, interpolate there? I don't think there is a best way. There are different ways of stimulating conjecturing. There are different ways of, at the beginning of terms, setting up an ethos in which it becomes part of the classroom practice that you make a conjecture and that you don't believe your conjecture. That's important. And so you learn to challenge other people's conjectures so that you can learn to challenge your own conjectures. So conjecturing is, it's a way of being. It's, um, there isn't a sort of a best way to to um, undertake a con you know to make conjectures. So so in practical terms in a classroom it would really depend who I was working with and and what had gone on before you know there isn't there isn't one thing I would do but certainly giving thinking time is really important or you know whisper what you think to your neighbour. And, and if you if you both think it's a good idea, then you can tell me about it out loud. You know that kind of thing, because you have to build up, you have to build up confidence. And uh, and if you look at what happens in um, in um, Japanese classrooms, the process of kikanshidu. Do you know about kikanshidu? Does that <laughs> phrase mean something to you? So well, what was it? Say it again. Um, Kikanshidu. No, no, this is a new it's, one to it's me. It's not a question about whether what a female <laughs> what a female can manage. Um, right. It's a word which I'm probably pronouncing, which means between the desks. Oh, and okay. It's a it's a particular phase of the lesson, and it's not wandering around checking who's wearing school uniform properly. It's not wandering around waiting for kids to put their hands up and ask for help. It's walking around between the desks looking at what people are doing and listening to what they're saying to see the variety of things that are happening and to decide which of those things you're going to use for the next phase of the lesson. And then the next phase of the lesson is to take examples of the different ways that people are talking about the task and to display those or bring those into the public domain so that there can be some discussion about the advantages and disadvantages of different approaches. And it's these are mixed ability classes, and this is a standard practice in Japanese schools. The second part, isn't that, called, isn't that Bansho? Uh, Bansho is the whole lesson. Oh, okay. Is, I, I, uh, yeah. In Toronto, they were using Bansho to mean what you were referring yeah, to. Yeah, okay, okay. So, um, so, so you, you, you bring those into the public domain so that in the public domain, you've got a variety of approaches. Let, let me give you an example from, um, Tuesday. 
okay, it wasn't school kids, it was PGCE students, but I was working with some PGCE students that I didn't know, and um, I had given, uh, there were three, three tables with several students on each table, quite big tables, and each table was folding paper to make a kite, but they were using three different sets of instructions. So they were making three different kites. And then there were some other instructions around for the people who finished quickly. And that, so in the end, we ended up with five different types of kite. And some of them were harder to fold than others. So if you want to use the D word, there was some D going on. But I had <laughs> no preconceptions about who could do what at all. Because it depended just as much on prior experience with origami as it did anything else. So, um, so we had five um, types of kite um, around. And I asked them to go and glue tap them to the wall in ascending order of area and uh, so people came up and <coughs> took decisions and people were shouting out this one's bigger you know there was a whole schmozzle <laughs> five in order of area now what um i will do that again as this was at the very end of the session so we didn't have time to really work on that um there were lots of different forms of reasoning happening in putting them in order. But I've thought about it since and thought, I'm going to do that again. But next time I do it, I'm going to allow time for the following discussion. The discussion is, what were you using in order to put them up in, in order of area? Yes. Because some of it was, it looks like. This looks like bigger. This looks smaller, etc. Some of it was in comparing the properties of different kites by sticking one on top of the other and just seeing if one was bigger all round than the other. So comparing, so first of all, it looks like. Secondly, physical comparing. Thirdly, comparing based on reasoning from properties. You know, because the line of symmetry is the same length but the other diagonal is longer therefore the area is bigger so reasoning from properties was a way that was going on as well and another way that was going on was um, numerical calculations based on measure and another way that was going on was numerical calculations based on geometrical reasoning and trigonometry and area formulae. So we had a whole range of different things from it looks like to two sophisticated methods, one of which was reasoning based on properties and one of which was doing the trig and using the area formula. So we could have talked about the relative power of those different methods and can I can I ask us something fascinating here um, for for me and with this? So over the last couple of episodes or so, I've I've tried to on this podcast. I always speak to people with really contrasting views on on the way to teach and and, and different thoughts and philosophies. 
And there's been a real split between those who favour, and we've mentioned direct instruction, and I know it's it has lots of different meanings and, and connotations. But I've also interviewed Andrew Blair and um, Helen Hindle as well, who favour an inquiry model approach. Um, just thinking about this specific kite example here, where if, if you were doing this with, with students, whether it be year nines, year sevens or whatever, would there be a period of so-called direct instruction where, for example, you modelled, explained and gave kids practice on how to actually work out the air of a kite? And if so, where would that come in this sequence? Would it have come before this activity or would it have come after this activity and almost using the activity as as Andrew Blair talks about it? to almost provide purpose for, for then the kids being taught and wanting to know more, wanting to know how to actually work out the air of a kite. If, where does direct instruction fit into this, if any? Okay. Could, could, I, could I just yeah. try something here? Can I, try, I want to try something. <laughs> go on, I'm nervous, but go for it. No, no, it's that I could use that, I think that I could use that task at the beginning or fairly early on or in the middle or fairly late on, or even even at the end of a topic, uh, of the topic of uh, finding area. Okay. I, so the, I can actually use it anywhere. It depends on my relationship with the students, their relationship with mathematical thinking, or my at least my reading of their, my interpretation of their um, relationship to thinking mathematically. Uh, and it might also depend on the weather. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, if it's raining and it's miserable outside, I might act differently than if it's sunny. Um, it, there, there are a lot of factors which could lead me to choose uh, to introduce, a, to make use of a task like that, like the kites, at different points in their experience. So, for example, I could use it at the beginning to introduce the notion that it would be really nice if we had an efficient way of calculating areas. Yes. I could use it at the end of a sequence because it's, as you say, um, it's a way of seeing that what I've just learned could actually be used to answer a question that, it, that I would otherwise find difficult to answer, namely, which one of these is bigger? Yeah? Yes. And would you, would, and you I, have a pre would you have a preference there, John? No. I, I have no, no pre-preference. No, no, sorry, no pre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no pre. <laughs> no, well, in advance of doing. That's what it means. Pharaoh, yeah. yes. tuli latum. It's mm -hmm. the doing or the making. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I don't have a, a pre. This is how I do it. It's what comes to me in the moment um, with, with all, with my various sensitivities and insensitivities. Um, which makes me might make me choose to do one way or another. And one of the things I'm very strong on is that I do not want to teach every topic in the same way. Start with an investigation yes. that raises a question, you know, that, or whatever, because that makes students dependent on what I'm doing. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you. I'll tell you the reason I ask, and this I'm torn between this, and I'm hoping that you two can can, can help me answer this, because what what I've tra what I've traditionally done is I've, I've I've taught a topic, and I always use the example of Pythagoras with mm -hmm. this one. So I teach the basics of Pythagoras's theorem for say two or three lessons to a year nine class or something, and then lesson four would be applications of Pythagoras's mm -hmm. theorem. So it'd be your classic length of a diagonal of a football field or a ladder's leaning against the wall, mm -hmm. or, or all the classics. Mm -hmm. But of course the problem 
problem with that is it's very obvious to the students that it they have to use Pythagoras. So I'm yep. not actually testing whether they can decide when it's appropriate to use Pythagoras and not Pythagoras because it's it's come at the end of a sequence of Pythagoras lessons. Mm. It's obviously a Pythagoras question. And just yep. thinking to the kite example there. I guess one of the disadvantages of using that kind of activity at the end of a sequence of lessons would be that perhaps you wouldn't get the variety of approaches that Anne's talked about at the start because everyone will be thinking, well, he's yes. taught me how to do air of a kite, so I'm just going to use the air of a kite formula, if that makes sense. So yeah. I, I don't know I don't know when it's best to use these kind of activities. Well, it depends, it, it, it depends. It's the word best. Yes. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It really depends what your pedagogic aim is if your aim is for them to know area of a kite there's all sorts of ways you can do it you can just come in and tell them i mean there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing wrong with telling um just don't so assume that as, they've taken yeah, it in but that yes. gives you all the problems of um a memory which is detached from anything else that makes sense for them whatsoever and that is a linguistic memory and blah 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 and it's just another formula and how do i keep these all sorted out so it's not attached to anything it's not associated with any other ideas no, but so so long as you so long as you know if you tell kids things that's going to be really hard for them to remember but but why you know back to, back to that guy's question um why would we teach why do we teach pythagoras Let, let's take area of a kite why why would we teach area of a kite why why do we do that no reason. You know, in terms of a child's development, why do we do that? In in the situation that that I set up, um, you don't need area of a kite formula. You you do need to know something about um, area of triangle. So you need to know uh, you need to know that. Um, so uh, in fact, you may not even need to know that because you can always do that by folding half a rectangle because you've mm. got loads of rectangles around. So so there's something you, and you need to know what area is. You need yes. to be able to tell me what area is. What is the area of a shape that is not on squared paper? So what does area mean? So you need to have. Um, conservation of area, which is a very, very basic idea that very young children get. Jigsaws. Um, and, and they practice it by doing jigsaw puzzles and things. And, uh, and you need to know something about how we measure area and some calculations. You would not set off on this task if you weren't fluent with knowing how to find area of rectangle, area of triangle. You just wouldn't right. set it. What would be the point? Some children would be utterly miserable because yes. they'd spend their whole time worrying about that. And actually, you can put the kites in order using reasoning, using an understanding of conservation of area and reasoning. You can do it that way. Which is making the use point, of mathematical powers more, yeah, more directly. The point yes. of having all those different methods is to understand the power and affordances of different methods. It's to give them some really serious mathematical tools and choices. Like, do I, can I reason from properties? Can I reason from measurement? Can I reason from trigonometry and knowing the ratio of the sides of the A4 paper those different forms of reasoning 
and to compare those and to understand that there are these different forms of reasoning. And sometimes one is easier to apply than, than, than another. And they don't get that except in maths. And what's more, now, because of the way that maths is tested at Key Stage 2, they don't necessarily get it before they get to secondary school. Yes. So subtract two numbers. We would, you, you know, you and me and John, we would look at the numbers and decide what's the best method to use. Yes. But if you've been to a primary school that's been terrified of key stage two tests, you've only got one method and it happens to be the most error prone. So <laughs> so it's a real it, it's something that really at lower secondary has it's almost a, a what's the word a rescue job. <laughs> it's a rescue yes. job to get people to understand that this isn't I'm going to use this method because it's the one I first thought of or it's the easiest for me, or it's the one I know how to do. It's I'm going to use this method, because if I use this method, then uh, there's going to be benefits from that, like it's going to be quicker, or it's going to be more accurate, or it's going to be more abstract or something than, than, than others. So that's why I would use that task. Nothing to do with area of kite at all. But having said that, incidentally, while we were doing it, some people, and these are graduates, some people are saying, oh, look, area of kite. You just do tons of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and so, I mean, obviously the point of this session was to bring out some things about pedagogy. But to have that experience of, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I've just seen the area of kite is such and such was really quite nice. And there's a, there's a, an extra dimension to these kite tasks. Anne was doing it at the end of the session. But um, if you turn it, if you move your attention from area to how did how do you know that actually is a kite? Yes. It turns out that there are quite different um, ways you have to reason geometrically for different fo kite folding algorithms, uh, instruction sets. And I, I, I mean, curious, I couldn't think of a lesson that went badly um, when you asked the question. But I've now remembered one in Iceland where I had I used these kite tasks and we were trying to prove that they were kites. And I couldn't for the life of me remember or, or even see I couldn't see how to prove that they were kites. And, uh, it, and one of the things that had foxed me was that in one of them, you need to pay attention to. One um, one way of thinking geometrically using angles, and another one is really important is is to look at uh, lengths and and so on. And, um, and I, I I'd lost the plot at that point, so we had to leave it as a conjecture. Well, no, this sort of leads on to variation, which I know you want to get on to because. Um, the, 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 one of the points about the kite task is that they are all kites. Another point about the kite task is when we're working in professional development contexts, we have not got a particular learning goal in terms of a mathematical fact yes. because that's not what we're working on. But nevertheless, some of the things are still, uh, still apply, which is you've got a constraint, which is that they're kites and You've got another constraint, which is that you're looking, in the end, you're looking at area. And so you've got those two constraints. 
So you do know what you're doing. So if other things happen, you can just say, well, that's not what we're doing today or something like that. You can close it down so that there is always something to compare. And comparison is a really hugely important idea throughout mathematics is is having something to compare because then you don't focus on the things themselves. You focus on um, relationships. connections, same difference, relationships between the things or relationships within the things. Yes. So, for instance, if you draw a rectangle and I draw a rectangle... Well, they'll probably both be three by two in ratio. So then you draw another one and I'll draw another one. And those will probably be different. And then we compare. Forget the first ones because they'll be a kind of stereotypical sort. But we compare the the, the others that we've done. Um, and they're both rectangles. Well, how do we know they're both rectangles? Well, because da 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 So those are the properties. And And then, well, in what ways are they different? Well, the length of the sides are different. Yeah, okay. Um, well, but I can draw a small one that is the same shape as yours. So in what ways are those different? Well, they're different in size. Yeah, but how are they the same? So you can work towards yes. ratio of sides through this process of controlled comparison. And this is why <clears throat> variation when I first read about it, why it excited me so much was that I could see that somebody was putting a language to what I knew as a mathematician and I knew it was important and I knew that I did it and I knew that some exercises in textbooks had that embedded in them but most didn't, that mostly there wasn't anything to compare. And you write about that in, in your book. You, you get that, don't you? That most exercises, there isn't anything to compare because there's too much variety or there's no variety or whatever. And, and, and so having this language of variation was um, like, you know, going through a keyhole into a room that is huge and full of things you didn't imagine sort of creeping through a keyhole into Brighton Pavilion or something. You know, I, I felt as if that's what had, that's what had happened. That, ah, oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, of course. Um, bringing, and this is what I mean about bringing the private into the public. There are some things that we do when we do maths that are tacit, that are implicit, that are private that we don't have a language for. And I think what John and I have done throughout our writing careers is give a language for those things, some of those things, so that if you give a language to it, you can then think about it. Yes. Now, sadly, I think variation has become variation with a capital V, and <laughs> and teachers, some teachers are thinking there's a right way to do it and a wrong mm. way to do it. There isn't. It's actually embedded in mathematics, but it's what you need to think about. So if you if you go back to the three plus four equals seven that John introduced, I'm thinking. And the reason I got to the sweets pile was thinking of um, variation in representation at different ages. Can you can can um, 
commutativity of addition be understood at different ages? What would it take to understand at different ages? Well, it takes some constraints. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to move away from three plus four until we've done a lot of work on it and have got all kinds of ways of expressing it and seeing it. Three plus four, four plus three, that sort of thing. I'm not going to go off on, tell me about seven. Oh, seven is five plus two. I'm not going to go there until we've got lots of stuff with three plus four. Some of which is generalizable and some of which isn't. So um, I'm not going to come away from that until a lot of the properties of three plus four that I know are general properties have been talked about. And then we've got a range of language that we can apply to two and five and seven. Can we say all the same things about two, five and seven that we could say about three and four? Yes. And that's where your generalizations come in. That's where your abstractions come in. And that's really, really important. And I think those are the things that need to be talked about. Now, this is where direct instruction just doesn't help mm. as, a, as a phrase at all, because it could be that someone could say, well, that's direct instruction. You're teaching them that three plus four is seven. When actually my pedagogic aim is to understand additive structure, binary additive structure. And I'm not actually instructing them directly in that. I'm creating a situation in which that is talked about so much that it becomes a thing we can talk about in future. And that, yes. that's, that's one of the dangers of tasks. I mean, I, I speak as someone who has promulgated quite a few mathematical tasks in my time, um, but I'm speaking to you and to other people who... Uh, have also written textbooks with lots of tasks in them. But the, the, the task itself doesn't indicate what the awarenesses are that the task um, affords access to. And it's very easy to um, end up with the superficial part of the task, which is to get the answer, rather yes. than to use it. Again, this is the rich task, used or the task used richly. Three plus four... Uh, you know, even an upper primary can be used to re to reaccess the properties of um, arithmetic, uh, in particular addition in this case. Um, and it's, it's not the task; it's the awarenesses that the that the teacher has and how they work with student attention, so that student attention is eventually directed to what those awarenesses, and so that they develop those awarenesses for themselves. Yes. Now, uh, in contrast to Anne, my my access to to the notion of variation was that I was brought up as a Bur I'm a Bourbaki child. I was brought up. You're, say again, John. You're a, a what? A Bourbaki child. B <coughs> what, what does that mean? B B O U R B A K I. I'm learning loads here. Not just about maths. We've had Japanese terminology. Now we now but we've got this. This is French. Bur right, okay. Bourbaki was an obscure general in Napoleon's army. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's a yeah. statue to him. But what happened was that a group of mathematicians at the beginning of the 20th century got together and they attempted to 
um, uh, uh, present mathematics on, a, on secure foundations. And so they wrote a whole series of textbooks, um, which uh, I guess we would now call modern mathematics or, um, or structural mathematics, perhaps even. Um, and it turns out, I didn't find this out until I got to this country, but I didn't, I didn't realize it. But many of my lecturers um, ha were actually following. We were, we were actually lectured to from some Bourbaki texts. Um, and w one of the essences of 20th century and indeed 19th and uh, middle 19th century mathematics is the notion of invariance. People began began to become aware that in various mathematical situations there were things that remain invariant even when you change when you're allowed to change. The most obvious example is the sum of the angle, interior angles of a planar triangle. Yes. It doesn't matter how you change the triangle, the sum remains invariant. Now that's a that's a, a school version. Um, uh, the determinant of a, of a matrix uh, is independent of orthogonal transformations. Uh, as an example, or the trace of a matrix is independent of, of um, orthogonal transformations. Um, um, the whole of, of modern uh, differential geometry uh, and algebraic sorry algebraic uh, geometry is about finding analogs, mathematical analogs to the notion of counting. So here's yes. the invariant. I take a bunch of objects, I put them all in a very mm -hmm. small bag, and then I take them and I put them in a very big bag or I spread them out on the table. The cardinality is invariant. The way they're displayed is allowed to change. And um, advanced math, you know, um, you know, the 20th century mathematics um, and uh, is... And a lot of it is about finding analogs to counting, which are things which remain invariant about surfaces when you transform them, you, uh, thinking of them as on, on a rubber sheet and all of that, that topology and so on. So Bourbaki was pushing various ideas such as this. And so I encountered that right from the beginning of my undergraduate career. And so when I heard um, Ferenc talking about variation, it just fit, you know, it just it was another way of talking, a slightly different vocabulary for talking about what I had been thinking about <clears throat> since I was an undergraduate. Yes. I, want, I want to uh, to go go to variation theory now because um, you quote in your book from Martin and Pang where they're propounding mm -hmm. that what you notice is what varies against an invariant background. Yes. Well, yes. we don't actually agree with them about. Oh, oh nice. This will be, <laughs> this will be good. Well, we, we, we agree that you do notice that. Yeah, you do notice but that. But there's something else then, you can notice but too. They, yes. But then they go on and say, you know, you don't notice what is invariant against right. varying background, and um, we can give loads of examples. Yes. Where you jolly well do notice what's invariant. So if you've got a whole bunch of calculations and the answer is always 10, you always notice. I mean, the kids will say, look, it's always 10, it's always 10, it's always 10. Well, why is it always 10? So, so, the, um, so what they're saying quite definitely there, uh, first of all, Ferenc has softened on that a bit. But secondly, it might apply for Pang because he teaches economics, but it doesn't apply in mathematics. So, um, because what you're trying to do in mathematics is you're trying to get, you're trying to help your students see the underlying relationship. 
Yes. And you can't mess with the underlying relationship. So if I want students to see that the angles of a planar triangle add up to 180, I can't mess with that. I can't give them examples where it adds up to 179. Unless I un unless I set them all with protractors to do some measuring <laughs> and then some adding, and you discover that the sum of the angles can be anything from about 178 yeah, yeah, yeah. to 100. <laughs> that's one so, of the reasons why that's a really bad task. Is. Yes, so, I agree. So don't measure if you want children to do geometrical reasoning. I completely yep. agree, yes. <laughs> okay, so we've we've kind of teased and talked a little bit about variation theory, and it'll be no surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast or, or indeed who's read my book that I'm I'm absolutely obsessed with this at the moment. And just to give you a bit of background, the mistake I used to make, or I, at least I, well, I'm convinced actually that it, that it was a mistake, is that I would put the main focus of my planning on how I explained a concept to kids, whether it be through a worked example or whether it be through some discussion activity and so on. And then I'd be pretty careless when it came to the follow up questions that I would give kids to do. And I'd probably either just give them questions for, downloaded from a worksheet from TES or from one of these uh, randomly generated question websites. And that would be my way of getting kids to practice the concepts that we just I'd either taught them or we just discussed. And the more I read and the more I read your work and the more I spoke to the likes of Chris Bolton, the more I realized that I was missing out on a golden opportunity by not carefully variancing the sequence of practice questions that I gave my students. So I've become convinced that it's that the choice of examples and the sequences of examples are probably the single most important part of teaching, especially when you're trying to introduce a concept to students for the first time or go over something that they've perhaps not understood the first time they've been taught it. So my first question to you is, would you agree with that? And secondly, why is variation and invariance so important? Okay. Um, well, the first part you said most important. I, I wouldn't ever say anything was the most important because it always depends what awareness is you're trying to get your students to develop. So, um, and, and where you are and in, in your relationship with them and what happened before and what happened after, what, what you're going to do next, those sorts of things. So, so I'm not, I, I wouldn't ever say most, but I would agree with you that it's important and it's fairly centrally important. And I would also recognize the fact that that, that has not been explicit for a long time. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't ever made explicit to me by anybody else. It's certainly not explicit in most of the textbooks that we have, but it it was imp implicit in a way. In implicit, I now realise in the way that I used to think about what I did when I was at school. Yes, and um, it's. It's related, I think, to Piaget's idea of reflective abstraction, that um, when we've done something, we, 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 we tend to think, well, how was that? And to learn from the how was that, the how was thatness of what it is we've just done. But if you're doing um, a collection of questions, each question has that 
opportunity for you to say, how was that? How was that? So you might look at your working and think, oh, I think I did that one okay, and then go on to the next one. But to have a sense of the whole exercise as an object that you can reflect on has, I think, to be um, explicit in teaching so that um, when you're designing it, as you say, when you're designing it, thinking, I'm not designing 10 different things here, I'm designing one thing that has 10 elements to it and or five or however many questions you're posing and that the students think instead of i'm doing question one now i go and have a cup of tea i'm doing question two <laughs> now i'll now i'll text my friend i'm doing question three they're thinking i'm doing one thing here that's got 10 elements to it and when i've finished i'm going to look at it and see well what what have i what what's happened for me while i've been doing that and um and so yes it's important why why is variation and invariance important because that's how mathematics is structured <laughs> that's what it's about <laughs> <laughs> if they think about think about a quadra quadratics okay quadratics as a mathematical idea don't sort of exist all on their own floating about in space <laughs> somebody has decided these are a mathematical idea let's do quadratics um they they they, they fit into uh, a whole collection of functions there um uh, but but they are a class on their own or they are a class um on their own in some senses so what are the elements of that class well, of course there's a huge variety there's an inf absolutely infinitude of them but there are sub classifications as well and, ha and how we can get to grips with that is not by just seeing a bunch of random examples because then we don't know what it's important to pay attention to we don't know if it's important to pay attention if i just show you one how how do we know what's important about it? Yes. If I show you two, then, oh, they've all got X squared. They've both got X squared in them. That might be the only thing they've got in common. If I show you um, three, it begin to close down yes. the number of things that they've all got in common. But um, as you say in your book, if there's too much variety you're not even going to get to those really so so to be to, to really give it, it's part of the natural way that we see things in life you know we 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 learn about the world and we get about the world by dealing with familiarity so yes. that we're then ready to deal with unfamiliarity can and, I, and, oh, sorry, John, you, you go the, first. Well, one of the things that happens with quadratics is that um, if you commit yourself to be in the world of scaling and translation, there is only one quadratic. Yes. And that's pretty amazing. Mm. So un, it, the, you have an invariance of a shape, which and what is allowed to change is you're allowed to translate it anywhere you like on the plane and you're allowed to scale the X and Y axes in any way you like. Yes. And that immediately raises for me the question, oh, okay, how many cubics are there? Yes. There are three cubics 
And how many cortex? Oh, actually, there are infinitely many of these weasels. <laughs> <laughs> can I? Oh, so can I just? Oh, sorry, I'm. You go. I was going to say. So if you introduce cortex, there's at least two different ways that you can introduce the class of quadratics. Um, one is by several examples and comparing them and saying what they've got in common. That's the same different approach. Yes. The simultaneous, near simultaneous examples comparing approach. The other, because we have dynamic software, so we don't have to pretend that we haven't, is to take John's approach and to take y equals x squared and then to transform it and to see what happens. Now, you've probably done this with linear graphs anyway, that you have y, you start with y equals x and then you look at y equals 2x, yes. 3x, 4x, 5x, etc. And the kids say, can we 90, have 99, can we have 99? <laughs> and they're trying to push it over try, to the other trying side. Trying to make it flip over. And it yes. won't go over to the other side and you know, those sorts of things. And so from those, you're, making conjectures or you're you're having expectations and you're pushing at those and uh, and that's how you you learn about the about the structure because yes. the interesting thing about quadratics is that if your coefficient of your x squared term is zero yes is the thing that you then got a quadratic so this is why when John and I picked up the idea of variation um, and the, the Swedish notion of thinking about what are the dimensions of variation, we were thinking about, hang on, we can do better than this in maths. We can say, look, if we're thinking about introducing a class of objects or a concept, we've got dimensions. We haven't got any old dimensions of variation. We've got to talk about what's possible. So what are the dimensions of possible variation? And then within that, what, how can those dimensions be varied? So, for example, the, lead, the, the leading coefficient can be anything you like except zero. Yes. Yeah. But, what, so, but, so, but what's quite interesting, <coughs> excuse me, to me, is that I don't think I've ever seen a textbook where the leading coefficient was 0. 0.00001. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. But that's part of the dimensions of the possible oh, of variation. And so in the limit, a quad, so linear equations are boundary objects to the, to the example space mm. of quadratics. Yes. Mm. And yeah. then suddenly that gives you a completely different picture of what's going yeah. on. I think. And you can, and you can see quadratics as, as a squared term plus a linear term. Mm. And you can think about the linear term as the starting place. And build them from there. So there's all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, once you start thinking in terms of what can I vary and what, what, what has to stay the same, and then once you've thought of the coefficient of the x squared term as being your dimension of possible variation, and you ask yourself what is the range, then it matters to think about what is the range because of this zero the possibility of zero. Yes. And, you can, and in a different way, you can say, well, um, what's the range of possible variation of the leading coefficient so that my quadratics are always bowl-shaped? Yes. And that's perhaps an easier way to start. Or they're always hill-shaped. Yeah. What, what's, what's the range 
the range of change for that dimension. Or, or always, yeah. always above the x-axis, or always yeah. below the x-axis. Yeah. And there's another feature which is about invariance, which is available here, and it's really confusing. And that is to do with the graphing of an algebraic expression. Because if I'm allowed to change the scales on the axes, but I leave the object fixed, or I change the algebraic expression, but I leave the axes fixed. Yes. And that's actually quite confusing. It's confused lots and lots of people, famous mathematicians, oh, uh, lots oh, of times, oh. especially in the middle of lectures. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question? Um, so, I, I, as I say, I'm, I'm getting a little bit obsessed with, with this at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I think I've gone too far the other way. And I, I want your advice on this one. So, if we take, say I'm teaching my year nines or something, expanding double brackets, multiplying mm -hmm. out two brackets. So, in mm -hmm. the past... My examples, my sequence of examples will be terrible. I'll be doing an X plus one times an X plus three. Then I'd have an X minus three times an X plus five. There would be no, no logical mm -hmm. sequence. So that's bad. But now the thing, the well, I don't know if it's a mistake or not. So now a, a sequence of examples the kids might get might be X plus one times X plus two. X plus one times X plus three, X plus one times X plus four, X plus one times X plus five. Mm -hmm. So always holding yeah. the X plus one and then varying the uh, the number at the other mm -hmm. the, at the mm -hmm. other end. Now the problem I'm finding here is the the kids aren't at, the the spotting the pattern, the spotting the sequence, but then they're just continuing the sequence. So they're realizing that the coefficient of the X term just goes three, four, five, six, and the number uh, at the yeah, end just goes yeah, two, yeah. three, four, yeah, five. Yeah, yeah. And my fear is there. It almost becomes a complete the sequence exercise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they then don't relate that yeah. to the actual equation. And I think um, you this, refer this is, to this as going with the grain versus yeah, going yeah. against yep. the grain. Exactly. Is, that, is that a problem? And how do I get around it? It's not against the grain. It's across, across the, the grain. grain. Acro across the grain. Sorry, and I'll yes. tell you um, where I first came up with that description. Um, I was working as a support teacher in a, a class of children who had, were supposed to have special needs. They were being taught by the Senko, and she was giving them worksheets from some, you know, filing cabinet somewhere, and. Um, and some of them were um, sequential things. And an obvious way to fill out the sequential thing was to spot a sequence and to carry it on down. Yes. Well, no learning was going on. So I um, said, uh, well, hang on, stop here, stop here. Um, supposing we had a nine in here, you know, assume they'd got as far as five or something. Supposing we had a nine, can you tell me what the rest of the row would be without doing all the intervening yes. ones? Yes. Um, and, and that's when I came up with the idea of going with, with the grain, and it's about splitting wood. If you split wood with the grain, you put the axe in and you hammer it down, then you get a split all right, but you don't get anything that's structurally terribly interesting. If you saw a cross, then it's quite difficult to saw a cross, but you do see something of the structure of the piece of wood by doing you that. You see all the rings. You see the rings. So, so I thought, well, going across is much harder but is much more valuable in terms of structure. 
So, um, for instance, if you're setting that multiplying bracket, presumably what you want them to be end up with is, well, it's quite nice to be able to say that x plus 1 times x plus n, that I can tell you what that will look like. Yes. And um, and you get that by, at some stage, going across the grain. And it's the relationship that you're looking for. So um, so that's what the with and across the grain is about. And that's what John uses little cloud for. Do you want to talk mm. about? Well, I was going to say, I was going to say um, uh, the... That, that particular uh, set of tasks that you mentioned is um, one row of what we call a structured variation grid, where uh, row one might be um, x plus one into x plus one, x plus two, x plus three, x yes. plus four, uh, but row two uh, above it is x plus two into x plus one, x plus two, x plus three, x plus four, and the next one above is x plus three into x yes. plus four, so that the you get a two, uh, you get basically have two dimensions of possible variation, and it's in a grid, and you can click on any cell you like, and it will uh, expose it, and then if you click again, it will disappear again. So you expose a few of them in the first row and then a few maybe in the first column and you get people to start making predictions. And then you you ask them, what's going to be in the 37th row and the 49th column <laughs> yes. or whatever? You know, it's up to you. You can move the window around so you can actually go and check it uh, and see if the computer agrees with you. Um, but the, So the idea is to, is to, the idea of the structured variation grid was to move away from simply one dimension of, of uh, variation that's changing to uh, to be at least have two, um, but all of it is about predicting what's going to happen in general. Because what you're trying to get people to be aware of is the underlying relationships. Yes. So the coefficient the, the the coefficient of x is going to be the sum of the numbers, and the and the constant coefficient is going to be the product, and the leading coefficient hasn't changed. And then you can start putting in leading coefficients as well. Yes. And can I just ask directly on that on that, yeah. John and. Yeah. Because uh, one of my favorite papers is um, your, your 2006 paper, Seeing an Exercise as a Single Mathematical Object. And I'm going to link to all this in, in the show notes. But yep. There's a quote in that that really interests me. And you say that their evident surprise revealed the presence of implicit conjectures and expectations. And, and then later on, the breaking pattern caused many to begin to think about the mathematics behind what they are doing. Yes. And... The, the difficulty I've found sometimes is that kids just do the maths and they don't they don't reflect. And what I'm really trying to get kids to do now is to form expectations. What do they think the answer is going to be? Then yeah. work it out. And if it's right, brilliant. It's a good boost for them. But if it's wrong, even better, because then we've got the question, why Why isn't it what they expected? Mm, exactly. exactly. But my question is... You can't always build in surprise. Trust yes. Yeah. It's very hard to build in surprise. Of course. Of the, course. the surprise quote is referring to Krauss, where you're doing the, the taxicab taxi geometry. Yes. Where, where when you, you're doing the exercises, and then all of a sudden you get this question, and you think, what? Yes. Why did he ask me that? And oh, my God, it's the same. Oh. But, uh, but yeah. I, I guess it's the um, – I, I guess the importance is getting kids away from just doing the maths and getting them to – make predictions and expect yes, things yes. so i wonder how I think it's you know craig children aren't born doing that no exactly they've been schooled into doing that yes. so you school them out of it 
And how, think, do I, how do I do that, Anne? How do I do that? Yeah. I think it takes about six weeks I, I, to re-establish a different, a, a different um, set of classroom practices, and to make something different the norm, and and to mm. to have this. Is, this is why we wrote um, questions and prompts for mathematical thinking was to give to, to make articulate a collection of generic mathematical questions that could be asked, generic mathematical prompt types that could be posed by any teacher at any time in any topic. Yes. So that gradually these become Second part nature. of what happens mm. in the maths classroom. Um, because it's about re-establishing a different culture. And for me, it all comes under the heading of conjecturing atmosphere. Yes. I'm afraid. <laughs> it really does. Um, now, the, in terms of surprise, there's a brilliant um, paper by um, Nitsa uh, Movshevitz Hadar um, called Surprise. It's in FLM. And um, she points out that with almost any mathematical topic, Somewhere, somebody had a surprise. Otherwise, there was no point in in writing about it or even making a note of it. Yes. It, there's, and, but contacting that surprise is quite difficult when you become very, very familiar with it. Yes. Now, in the X plus 1 into X plus 2, the expanding brackets, the um, uh, Anne has reported to, to me that there was there's an interesting surprise when you do x plus one times x minus one. Yes, of course. Yes. And, and and but and that's really the only surprise that I can think of that's going to be there. Oh no no, there's some other ones. Okay, there I thought of another one. Good. Um, but that, <laughs> but that's a surprise because you suddenly get hey hey what happened to my x? It's gone. Yes. <laughs> and so, and so, that that actually happens to me in my secondary classroom. It's almost the only thing I can remember about any maths lessons at all in school is the moment when that happened yes and i kept it private because you didn't share that you know why why would you share that i thought i'd done something wrong because i couldn't get three terms yes yeah okay there, there's another surprise um, Go on. which goes like this imagine you've got my structured variation grid and it starts with um um, well, okay, we start with x plus one times x plus one in the bottom corner, bottom yep. left hand corner. And when you've got, and you started to fill it out. So if you go up, um, up what four rows, so we'll have x plus one, x plus two, x plus three, x plus four times x plus one. Yep. Now come down one row and, a, and one cell to the right. Okay. It, and I think you've got x plus 3 times x plus 2. Yes, yes. And then you might have x plus 2 times x plus 3 coming down again. Yes. On the, on the same diagonal. And then you've got x plus 1 times x plus 4. Yes. Now, tell me, what's the same and what's different about about what's in the answer cell? I would have you tell you, you put me on the spot. This is harder than my 4 plus 3 one from before, John. <laughs> I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying they've each got a, a 5x in there. They've each got a 5x. Yeah. Five. Nice. What? What? Yes, that's yeah. good. Oh, oh look, yeah. you've spotted an invariant yes. change. Yes. And, I mean, hopefully somebody will point out, hang on, sir, uh, miss, whatever your name is, <laughs> uh, why are those all fives? Yes. If we, be, if we really understand, if we really, I don't use the word understand, if we really appreciate and comprehend what's going on in this 
um, uh, structure variation grid because we've been working across the grain as well as with the grain. Yes. With the grain, I can fill out any of the cells. Well, you know, once I've got some, I can get the other ones going. But going across the grain is trying to relate the expanded version with the with the brackets version. And um, suddenly I start to see these. Uh, what's and so so we've looked at this diagonal. What about the diagonal two up, you know, two yes. farther out? Is that going to be invariant? What will be invariant? What will be the, what will be changing? You know, it's, it gives you lots. So there's just the little tiny frissons of surprise. I mean, can, I, can I ask on that? Because again, the, the the key here, of course, is to is to get students thinking about this and reflecting on this. And I, I've been fortunate enough to be in over the years um, both workshops run by both of you, and I've noticed that. Um, one thing, and I think it was you, John, who said it most recently when I, when I saw you in London, is that instead of asking learners, uh, what do you notice about the maths? You prefer mm. to say, what was your experience as a learner? <laughs> well, That's right. can, I, can I ask, what, what, why is that? Well, because, I mean, I've never liked the question, what do you notice? Although I know I'm probably uh, associated with it. Um, because, you know, well, I noticed that you're using green chalk. You know, <laughs> yes, or, or whatever, you know, green pen or something, um, or uh, you have a funny accent. Um, um, so what do you? I mean, okay, the one I remember saying is that I no longer ask why; I ask how do you know? Ah, yes. But, but that's that's a little bit different. I certain I try not to ask what do you notice, but I might ask what's the same and what's different, or yes. what's invariant and what's changing. Um, uh, I, I think I, I think I would be inclined to be asking those, but of course, in the flux, you know, the flow of a moment, I can't, <laughs> can't guarantee anything. No, I, I mean the re the reason I ask what? is because I often I often again I think it was a mistake looking back now. I would I would introduce something and then I'd say things like, "What questions do you want to ask?" And <laughs> the thing is, the kids didn't really want to ask any questions at all. Yeah. They were more they were more than happy with it. So I tweet right. that to um, what questions might a mathematician ask? And just that little tweak yes. kind of changed yes. the way of thinking. And I think it's it's so important, isn't it? Something that sounds good, like what what do you notice, mm. can actually divert attention the wrong way. And just by mm -hmm. tweaking that question a little bit, it can make a world of difference. Well, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And Anne has a nice account Mm -hmm. um, which I'm going to remind her of, and then <laughs> she can expand on it, of a teacher who said um, he would say things like, um, uh, uh, ask some sort of question, and then would say, this is the one that, um, I'll use my own name, this is the one that Mr. Mason likes. <laughs> and, and then after a while, people, he would say, okay, um, what do you think, I, what, what will Mr. Mason like? as an answer to this question. And that, that's very similar to what you've just been saying, namely yes. the kinds of question that Mr. Mason asks yes. have to, are mathematical questions. Yeah. Um, and so it's learning. This is a form of apprenticeship. Okay. This is a form of being in the presence of a relative expert and picking up behavior. And human beings are amazingly good at picking up social behavior, social practices. It's also been called the hidden curriculum because if you don't pick it up, um, you're not likely to pass the exam. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably. No, I, I'm I'm expanding a little bit too quickly here, but it's mm -hmm. um, it, it, there are practices and kids will pick that up, and, and I love that one about um, this is what Mr. Mason likes. Yeah. Yes, that's you're being, good. You're, you're being overt about my. Uh, I use this slogan: yes. being mathematical with 
and in front of your learners. Yes. To me, that's, you know, getting them to be mathematical, they need to be in the presence of somebody being mathematical. So, so the, 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 another thing wrong with what you notice is it, it sounds like just another version of guess what guess, I'm thinking. Guess what's in my mind. Yes. Guess, and you might lose things. I mean, you take that, um, the, the taxi cab task that's in our, our article and that led to this thing about the surprise, not even knowing you had an expectation. I, I use that task a lot, a lot, a lot with lots of groups of people. And there is always a variation in the response. They get, they, there is always the range of responses that I've reported, but there's always somebody who says something in a slightly different way that I haven't heard before. It's not mathematically different, but it's said in a slightly different way, or they, they, they notice things in a slightly different order. So, um, so that's, that's okay. That's okay because I can handle that, but it's, it's not helpful. Um, if what they're noticing is something that, <laughs> I don't know, doesn't lead to a generality. So I, I don't ask what you notice. Um, but another way of developing the culture that we're talking about is to, to be using a restricted range of prompts and questions mm. so that you can say to the students, what do you expect I'm going to say next? Yes. What question am I going to ask you? What I love that one. What am I going to ask you or what am I going to say to you? Because after a while, they jolly well know. Because <laughs> yes. that's what you always do. <laughs> yes. And then, then you can change what you always do because they are on the edge of, this is um, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, what he re I think what he really meant, which is that uh, they, they're showing that if you cue them, they can carry out some prompt, but now you're asking it sufficiently indirectly that they are on the edge of being able to cue themselves. Yes. And once, so, and that's the independency. You're, tr you're, you're trying to, I'm not sure of the word train, but you're trying to um, help them become independent of you. If they always depend on you to say, have you got an example? What's the, what would the general look like? And whatever it is, some prompt. If they depend on you, then they stop paying attention to that. Yes. So it's it's, it's the constant motion a movement of scaffolding and then fading that, that that scaffolding, so that they are internalizing the prompt. They are becoming more mathematically sophisticated in the process. Yes, and um, I've, I've one more question on variation theory, but we're, we're talking a little bit here about questioning. So it seems a good opportunity just just to mention something here. And the first thing to say is one of my all time favorite books in the whole wide world of any genre is, is Thinkers, a collection of activities to provoke mathematical mm. thinking. I think it's an absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful book. Um, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But just kind of based on that book, if, if we have a teacher listening to this who thinks, right, I really want to improve my questioning um, in class, I'm not, I'm not entirely happy happy with it. Do you have any tips, any favorite questions, any kind of good practices or habits that teachers could get into if they want to just improve their mathematical questioning in lessons? Well, can I first of all say something about that book? Thinkers. Um, because it's, um, you it's say favorite book of yours, and it's really important to us that you mention all the authors. Sure. Because what happened was, um, I'll tell you this story, 
um, I was in a school, a local school, and Chris Bills was one of the local advisory teachers. I was in a local school, and I picked up um, an A4 sheet that had a collection of questions on it, and they were clearly, well, I thought, influenced by questions and prompts. And uh, I picked it up and I sort of waved it around and said, oh, who's been reading our book then? (laughs) And they said, oh, that came from Chris Bills. And he had himself begun to extract ideas from questions and prompts and work with teachers on a a reduced range of questions um, that they could use generically. And this particular sheet just had three question types on it. So we got in touch with Chris and Liz because they're very good friends of ours and we had a meeting in a pub and we both <laughs> thinkers. And it's important it, to name all the authors of course. because neither Chris nor Liz are any longer in maths education for health reasons. But we we they're not first just because they're alphabetical. They're first because they did the initial idea behind that. So, so can you make sure that you do that? So, of anyway, that, that's not answering your question. <laughs> you now, want us to do tips for teachers from it, which is really hard for us. But no, I think you, I, I think you did that by pointing out that yeah. what Chris had done was to take two or three yeah, questions, and yeah. think, thinkers is actually an expansion of one pair of facing pages of of questions and prompts. Mm. It shows how you can expand those ideas into lots and lots of different topics. Um, Could you give us some examples of some of your favourites? I don't have. I don't have a. Favorite. I know you don't have favourites. I know. Sorry. <laughs> it depends on what, what we're working on. The point is, I mean, um, I'll, can I? Can I? I'll try and address your question, and then Anne will come in with a, a more complete sure. answer. It's a. It's picking something which pick some prompt which for some reason, has become significant for you. Maybe you found yourself, um, maybe you found that it was an effective prompt for you when you were last doing some mathematics, hopefully rather recently. Or maybe it's something that you've noticed children, your learners um, aren't doing spontaneously, but you think they, that it would be good if they would. So you pick some question that you find attractive and you start using that as much as you can. Some question type. Some question, question type, yes. Frame. Like, mm. what's the most okay. we can do here? Or it, 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 no, whatever it is. Put them in order. Put these in order. What's the same and different? Um, you'd say same and different is a really powerful one. So if you want somewhere to start, that's a good one to start with. Mm. Um, but the point is to, uh, to use it um, in as many different places as possible and not to have a lot of other prompts around it, but just that one uh, for a period of time. And then to gradually make your prompts more and more indirect. What have I been asking you to do last week? What did you do in this situation yesterday? Those sorts of indirect prompts. So just on that, if we have a teacher listening here, would a good kind of practical takeaway be to take something like what's the same and what's different and use it kind of a lot, perhaps in Monday's lesson, Tuesday's lessons, Wednesday's lesson, and then 
by the time Thursday and Friday comes around, start to saying, start saying to kids, what do you think I'm going to ask about this? Or what is the kind of thing you should be considering? So kind of choose one particular prompt, really hammer it, get as much life out of it as, as you can for a period of time, and then start to then prompt students to be thinking about that question. Well, would that be a good kind of practical path I think that, that a teacher well, could take? It kind of would, but you've also got to have what I call a then what. So supposing they've told you what's the same and what's different, yes. there's got to be some purpose to that. Yes. There's got to be something that then happens as a result of identifying that, like something is generalizable or you've introduced a slightly new take on something that they're already partially familiar with. Oh, the, you're pointing to the, an invariance and the, the domain, the, you know, the range of permissible yeah. change, which leaves that invariant. You, you find um, in, in some of the Chinese textbooks, you find, um, I mean, it might not be explicit what's the same, what's different, but you find that a, a, a concept will be developed through thinking about something that's slightly different to what's gone before. Um, and, and that's, so what's the same, what's different? Is, is the reason, the answer to that is the reason why we're going to learn this new thing. Because this old thing we had doesn't do the whole of the job that we want done. So, yes. so, um, it, there's, there's got to, it's all got to be wrapped up in mathematical yeah. purpose. The, the, one of the, one of the powers of same and different is that, um, you can start using it when you're discussing the homework. Yes. What's the same and what's different about questions one, two, and three, or five, six, and seven, or even four and twelve? Uh, because what you want the, the the learners to be doing is when they when they've got some homework which involves several questions, is to be asking themselves, well, what's the same and what's different about yes. these? Because that's really the question. What am I learning by doing these? And I guess, again, that goes back to the point we were making before, that that's only possible if you've got this well-sequenced run of questions, right? If the questions are just randomly chosen, it's going to be quite hard to find something possibly that's the same and different. Whereas if you've well-varied the sequence of questions and there is a definite link between questions two and question five, perhaps they've got the same answer. That's yeah. when students mm. can be asking these questions. Yeah. Um, and I guess the final thing I just wanted to say. Can about, I, can I, can oh, I sorry, please, one more please, thing. please, John. Um, in setting up opportunities for same and different, it really helps if you've got two or maybe three objects to ask what is the same and what's different. So my preparation for a lesson where I was going to promote what's the same and what's different would involve me choosing, let's say, uh, three pairs of brackets that I was going to um, get, you know, to collectively, we, we were going to collectively expand together. I, I would want three pairs of brackets where I could do some, what's the same about these two, it's different about the third one. Yes. So I can, I can use that to draw attention to the, the, the things I want them to attend to. Yes. And I think that's much more preferable than saying, well, we've got a thing called foil, and this is how you, you draw these little arcs and this little face, and then that tells you what to multiply mm -hmm. on, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yes. I, I much, much prefer that if the, the students are, are recognizing relational structure and expressing that, comprehending that, and appreciating that that's what's going on when you're expanding brackets. Much prefer that to some sort of little algorithm that you draw this face and then that tells you what to. What to do. <laughs> yes. 
Um, just just on that, um, and this will be my last last question on variation. Although it's kind of two questions rolled into one, if if that's all right. Um, whenever I've been kind of giving talks and um, and working with teachers about this this variation, or sometimes I call it intelligent practice. Sometimes mm-hmm. teachers say to me, "It's really hard to write." Uh, a kind of well varied sequence of questions and I, I, comple- I completely agree and I, as I say it's my obsession at the moment and I still find mm-hmm. it incredibly challenging but I say and I, I want your opinion on this a good way to perhaps start thinking about this is just to try and in class whenever you do two worked examples with students just try and see if you can make a connection between those examples so try keeping one thing constant between those examples or try and make sure the answer is the same or just just so there is at least a connection between just two examples that you do with kids so you can start to have these questions what's the same what's different what's changed and so on would you think that's good advice for teachers wanting to improve the examples they use and then the questions that they give kids just to pick one or two and try to find a connection between them. I would say very definitely. And also to ask yourself, what is it that is important for me to attend to when I'm doing this question? Yes. That gives me clues as to what it is. I think it's sensible for students to be attending to when they're doing this, these, uh, these type of questions. And then I choose my examples so that, my worked examples, so that it, it either naturally draws attention or um, attention can be drawn to yes. what's, what I consider to be mathematically important. Yes. Well, that, 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 that leads to... So you really need to think mathematically about the topic in order to choose the examples you're going to use. Got it. And this is my, my final question on this, and because um, I've been wrestling with this as well, and I'm, I'm hoping you two can help me here. Is there still a place for non-varied sequences of questions? And the reason I ask this is, do we almost, after we've taught something to students, maybe when we revisit it three weeks later or three months later, do we want them to be able to answer questions in isolation? So outside of a well-sequenced pattern of questions. Yeah. So it, is there a place for non-varied questions later on when we're, we're trying to test recall and, and how much they've retained? Well, I want, I want to back up a bit, um, first of all, which is that you said you call variation intelligent practice. Intelligent practice isn't the only place where variation kicks yes. in in mathematics. It, it's also about what you do next after what you've done before. You know, there's also something about the conceptual development, how, how, how students are learning how these things all fit together, how they're developing one idea from an earlier idea. You know, variation kicks in all the way along the line, not, not only in when they're doing some examples yes um and what they're going to notice from from those so it's it's a much a much bigger idea than that and i know that there have been attempts to call that conceptual or procedural which are not terribly helpful but but um but um there's something else you know there's other stuff to be thought about which which we won't, won't go into but um, but then to get back to your question, it depends what you're doing all this for, really. Are you are you are you are you preparing students to answer typical exam questions? Because there's all kinds of ways of doing that. 
so that they can be on autopilot throughout the exam with no thought about mathematical meaning at all. But if you are um, convinced, as we are, that all children can grasp mathematical meaning and can read mathematics and do mathematics so it makes mathematical sense to them, then, of course, your ultimate aim, your ultimate aim is for them to see a mathematical problem, a mathematical situation, whatever, um, and to recognize within that a structure with which they're familiar. And then they know what to do. Yes. So, so, so the ultimate aim is, you know, I'm walking down the street. I mean, this happens in some countries. Walking down the street and there's a mathematical problem hanging on the wall in a poster. Or in a pub. Where was it where people used to put mathematical problems in pubs? What country was that? It was Japan where they put them in, into um, in temples. temples. In Japan, but yeah. in pubs, where was it? Don't, oh, I don't remember. Don't remember. Some South American country where it's perfectly or normal to see problem on the wall of a pub. Anyway, something like that. Um, and, and to be thinking not, is that one of those things I've been doing all week? But to be looking at it and thinking, oh, what's that? What's that about then? But to know how to answer that question, what it's about, by read, by thinking, what does this remind me of? What's the structure here? How are these numbers related to each other? Um, how can I exploit that relationship? And then the, the, the doing the calculation or whatever it is is the last thing you do because it's the reasoning. So, um, so, so offering, I don't know why you call them non-varied, because of course they're varied. You know, if you're opposite. They're not structurally varied. <laughs> you mean not structurally varied, don't you? So of course, of course you would do that. Um, can, can I speak to this? Yeah. Because, can I get related very quickly an anecdote from my experience? I was in Colombia in South America and I had been taken out to a little village that was specialized, specialized in uh, guanabana, which is a particular fruit uh, which makes a lovely drink. There was nobody in the um, town square except for two children uh, sitting on the curb um, with a pile of cards that they had made. They were clearly handmade, homemade. And on each one of them was a mathematical question. <laughs> and what they were doing was they were, they were shuffling it and picking one out and then seeing if they could answer the question. Yes, nice. I mean, and, and look at that. You've got two things, two phenomena here. You've got a scaffolding and fading that's taken place because presumably the teacher has done something like this and then these kids have picked it up. Maybe they did it spontaneously um, as a way of um, exposing themselves to random questions in a random order. Yes. So what I would recommend that, that, um, that learners do, particularly at A level, but also further down, when it, as a way of studying for mathematics, is to make is to take the, the the tasks that they've been given, cut them up, glue them onto cards, separate cards, scramble the cards, and then see what they can do with them. And you don't have to answer the question necessarily, but you need to say to yourself or to your friend, um, I think what I would do here first is. Whatever, so that so that they have a way of starting on questions that they're exposed to, and these would all be questions that they had worked on in class, 
but yes. but they won't have memorized how you do each one. That's for sure. So, so and, and can I also refer this to um, uh, Victorian arithmetic and algebra books, which for a period of time enjoyed having a final section of the book, which were called promiscuous problems. Well, miscellaneous was more common. No, it? promiscuous was, okay. was very <laughs> common. They then became. Then miscellaneous, that's true. But I like the promiscuous. I thought that was one. <laughs> nice. Promiscuous problems were problems which were put in, well, had basically been put on cards, shuffled, and then printed in, in some order. Yes. Um, then miscellaneous problems began to be um, when they grouped uh, questions which are, uh, involved a similar a mathematical approach into little sections. And that's what they called miscellaneous. Now, the promiscuous is, is the examination preparation. Now, one of the, there's a, here's another uh, teaching stra um, study strategy. You look at a take a question out of the textbook or out of the you know wherever you get your your, your worksheets pro problems, and write down a particular and simple question that's like this. Write down a, a question that's like this, but it's a bit peculiar in some way. Write down a question like this that's rather complicated in some way. And if you're up for it, write down a problem which is like this, which is general. Ah, nice. I'll leave you with Anne. Go and check the phone. The no problem. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think a lot of this depends on what you think the purpose is of teaching mathematics and what you want people to learn. If you get too locked into... I want them to do this and be able to do that, and I want them to do this and be able to do that. Then um, the answers are different. Yes. Um, to I want them to understand mathematical structure and be able to recognise the mathematics in problems and be able to adapt their reasoning in order to answer these. Um, and and I think very often people get locked into the first. Yes. in the testing culture, rather than the second. And yet a lot, uh, there have been studies that show that if children are educated in the second of those, then they do just as well in the first of those. Because if they're asked to do something that they don't, that they haven't seen before, they can treat it as a problem to be solved, rather than as a method to be remembered. Yes. But you can't do everything like that. You know, that, that that's... You have to be fluent in, in various things. So so it depends what you're after. And yes. if, you, if you're interested in their fluency, but you give them 20 extremely different questions and expect them to do them in five minutes, then you're, but you're not actually helping their fluency. Yes. You're, you're, if you haven't, meanwhile, educated them to understand the structure and the transformations of that structure. Yes. And um, I've just got... Oh, sorry, John. Another feature about fluency is that the whole point about fluency is that you're attending as little as possible to what you're doing. Yes. So when you're fluently riding a bicycle, you don't think about, let's see, now I have to push with my right foot and then I have to push with my left foot, <coughs> and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the same thing is true with mathematics, I think. Anne and I don't entirely agree about this, but... Um, it seems to me that it's worth, um, if you want me to practice something, 
and become more and more expert in it, then you want to get my attention out of the doing and onto something else. And that's where tasks which involve me exploring something, but which in, in the process of exploring, I need to create my own examples. Let's take adding a fractions. Some, some exploration which involves me in trying uh, various pairs of fractions, and what I need to do is to add them, then I will be practicing the adding, but my attention will be on what it is I'm trying to find out in the exploration. And so it's helping draw my attention out of the actual fact of adding the fractions. That's interesting. And what what don't you agree on there, there Anne? Yeah, what, what, what I don't agree on is um, comes from my own experience of um, it being helpful to think of there being a period when I am focused on what I'm doing. No, I didn't say that. And then the, the, the performance of that in the context of something else, I might well have to kick back and think consciously about what I'm doing, but eventually I would hope to become fluent. So um, a, a very relevant example at the moment is um, children who are busy subtracting multi-digit numbers in columns because they have to do that for key stage two tests, but who aren't fluent in their number bonds up to 19 because in order to do subtraction by decomposition in columns, you need to be able to subtract single-digit numbers mm. from the teens numbers. Yes. Mm. And so if you have to stop and count on every time, then you're probably going to make errors and you're probably not going to get the right answer and you're probably going to hate maths. And so, um, so being fluent in those so that... Um, Seven from thirteen is no problem. is is quite an important thing, and that's the kind of thing that, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, going out into the car park to reorganise it isn't actually isn't going to help, help mm. you with. Yes, um, I I've just got one more question that I'd like to ask, and then I'm just going to ask you to reflect on a few things, and then uh, a chance for you to suggest links to our listeners. And my final question is. I was lucky enough to be in John's workshop um, last year in London, and he said something that was that was absolutely fascinating, and I wrote it down straight away, and I thought I must ask this, and that was that John said that lesson planning should be mental imagery, not writing lesson plans, mm -hmm. and I found that fascinating. So I just wondered, John, because we have lots of teachers listening here, and one of the main things they, they like to think about is how to plan lessons. So the idea of not writing a lesson plan, but using mental imagery, it just blew me away. So could you just expand on that a little bit please well uh, um, okay uh, of course I don't mean don't write anything down but what I do mean is don't you don't use some standard chart where I have five minutes of introduction and I'm going to do this at the beginning and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do something else um, yeah, my, my position is that the human activity of planning for the future is about imagining yourself as fully and completely as possible in that situation. Uh, the classic example that I uh, that underpins this for me was a, um, Peter Gates described a uh, person who was becoming a secondary teacher 
and he had some physical object. I think it was a polyhedron, but it, it doesn't really matter what it was. And so he had one of these. So he said to, in his written lesson plan, I shall hand this to the students and they can pass it around the classroom to get a, a sense of what the shape is like. But he clearly had not imagined himself doing this because right. what he what he discovered was he gave it to the first person and then started talking about it. Nobody else had had any sense of the shape at all because they hadn't got, <laughs> hadn't got to them. And by the time it got to the back of the class, we're talking about you know two thirds of the lesson or something. Um, the whole thing had gone completely belly up. Um, and for me, that that accentuates this notion that um, well, another example would be. Um, I uh, I want to make use of a strategy like talking in pairs or um, stimulating personal narratives uh, or reflection, indeed, on what what's worked so far and what hasn't, what might not have worked so far. I want to make use of this pedagogical strategy, so I I, I write down on a piece of paper, use the strategy, or use talking in pairs, or use personal narrative, or you know whatever whatever the thing is. But what really is effective is imagining myself in the lesson as vividly as possible, both the emotional state, my cognitive state, my physical state, and imagine the situation in which I could then invoke that particular uh, pedagogic action. Yes. And that, for me, um, and this is based on things that I didn't mention about uh, how I got to where I am, is based on my my year um, year maybe call it two or three years with um, with a teacher, um, a, um, what I call a capital T teacher, somebody who was well acquainted with uh, Eastern religions and Western religions and so on. Anyway, um, that all comes comes from that source that it that to prepare for the future, you imagine yourself in the situation as fully as possible. And that helps you wake up in that moment, in, in a relevant moment, and enact whatever it is you wanted to enact. That's fascinating. If I can embellish that a bit um, in a more sort of mathematical teacher sort of way. Um, if you're going to use a worked example, people would say to me, "We're going to go. I'm going to go through this worked example. So what do you mean go through? Yes. What are you going to say? What are you going to write? How are you going to write it? And to think always about the learner. What is the learner going to be looking at? What are they going to be seeing? What are they going to be hearing? What are they likely to be thinking if this is what you do and this is what you say? So to try to imagine the lesson not only from what you're doing but from what the learner is doing and then to reimagine what you're going to do in order to make it more likely that the learner will be hoping, seeing and hearing what you hope they're seeing and hearing and understanding what you hope, etc., etc. And very often when people do that, they change the example they're going to use because yes. something happens or and now oh gosh i've got two negatives make a positive what am i going to say at this point yes that sort of thing and well i don't want to get down that route so i won't use this example i'll use a different mm. example and to really to do that kind of imagining beforehand but i'm not talking about adopting scripted lessons because you have to it's got to be your script yes you're the person who's the teacher 
and the teacher-student relationship is an interaction. So you don't want the student interacting with somebody else's idea of what a lesson should be like. It all comes down to what, what is the student attending to usefully, and I get at that by asking myself, what must I attend to usefully, and then how do I get the student to be attending to that? Mm. Yes. That all comes down to that question. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 absolutely fantastic advice. Um, well, one more question from me, and then I'm going to hand over to you for your big three. And it's a big question to finish with, I'm afraid. And that is, what do you wish you'd both known when you first started your careers that you know now? Oh, nice. Um, can't answer that at all because um, so much of what you learn, you know, teaching is a process of becoming, really. And learning more about mathematics, teaching and learning is a process of becoming. And um, obviously there's heaps of things, but I, how, what would it mean to know them? We have a phrase, speak to your condition. You hear what speaks to your condition at the time. So there are lots of things I know now that if I had known them at the beginning, I probably wouldn't have known how to put them into practice or what they meant or anything. Um, when people read advice about teaching, they're likely to pick up those bits of advice that speak to their current condition. And don't actually hear things they that don't, don't speak to their condition. Yes, or they do hear them, but they, they, they go you know, somewhere where other, other stuff goes. So it's about speaking to people's condition. And this is the problem with trying to impose change on people quickly. Mm. People hear what speaks to their condition. And if you end up with a profession who are always being told to do this and then two years later being told to do that, then they, they become unable to hear and try to sort of go through the motions. We've got a friend in Calgary who's currently got a professional development project in a school. They've been working for seven years on change. And the reason they can do that is because they've got stability of staffing, stability of funding, and a government that don't keep chopping and changing. And so they're able to do that. And the work they're doing is absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. wonderful. And it comes, it's all coming from the teachers because the teachers are able to hear what speaks to their condition. Okay. Can I use Simon and Garfunkel? Yeah. Man hears what he wants to hear. This yes. regards <laughs> the rest. Yeah. That's and a brilliant answer. But that's why I can't answer your question. Mm. No, that is an absolutely fascinating answer. That that's that's brilliant. And all that remains now is just to hand over to you for your big three. So, are there any three websites or blog posts or anything you like that you'd want to direct our listeners to? And I'll pl- I'll place links to these in the show notes. Oh, it's just going to be really, really <laughs> because neither of us really um, use blogs or read blogs very much. You know, we we wait for other people to say you must look at this, you must yes. look at that. But we're we're not really bloggy we're, uh, website people. But I would say underground maths yes is terrific on many levels. Um, Can I say one of the reasons, because my answer is I'm not going to give you any websites, <laughs> because I think the time would be most usefully used posing and working on problems for yourself. 
because yes. in that way you sensitize yourself you but you have the potential to sensitize yourself to what students are experiencing and hence be able to respond to their situation well can i flip and, that and, on its and, head and, there? But, oh but, sorry john but um but uh underground mathematics is uh one good place for finding um relevant uh tasks which which will might invite you to um pose extra problems and and to work on them and to gain this experience yeah, I was just just wondering just on that then, because obviously in your workshops, some of the some of the problems and activities that, that you get uh, delegates, attendees doing it are just absolutely wonderful. I just wonder, do you have any any favorite sources of those apart from underground maths or are they things that you create yourself? Well, where do you get your inspiration for these kind of activities from? From our own experience. From our experience. That's right. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> many times I have. Uh, experience something and then two or three years later I come up with this idea and I'm confident that I got it from somewhere but I have the faintest idea of it. <laughs> um, I don't, I, there is at least one problem I know that I actually invented completely myself <laughs> um, but no I have I didn't say this but I mean since I was probably 11 or 12 I've been posing mathematical questions to myself and working on them so creating questions is something that I've always done Yes. Um, and and what, I, what, what I've done, I mean, I, I don't know where, where it comes from. Sometimes I know it's something I've designed, very often using variation, either explicitly or implicitly, but by, by trying to imagine what is possible, what it is possible to do with this particular mathematical object. Sometimes I know that it's an idea that I got from somewhere else, but I don't know where, because at the time I haven't written it down and put someone's name against mm. it, because sometimes things come back later, and I think, oh, yeah, when I was doing that. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you what I do think is terribly important, is to keep going to conferences and keep going yes. to other people's sessions yeah. and not just fly in. We try to do this. We try not to fly in, do our own session and then fly off somewhere. We do try to go to other people's sessions and try to keep our own experience fresh. Mm, definitely. Um, you wanted a, some books and um, one of the, I thought of two things. One of them is What, what We Owe Children. The Subordination of Teaching to Learning by Caleb Gatenio. Oh, that, not, not heard of that one, John. That sounds oh, fascinating. It's terrific. And the other one would be Paul Yu's film, Let Us Teach Guessing. Let me make a note of that. that I've not seen that one either. Flipping heck. Right, that's my weekend sorted there. That sounds perfect. <laughs> well, I think you have to pay to get a hold of Paul Yu's film. I, I'm not quite sure. But it, it comes out of the Mathematical Association of America. It was made in 1906. Five or seven or something, but um, anyway. And, um, uh, John Holt, How Children Fail, How Children mm -hmm. Learn, which you probably do know about. Um, and um, I'm enjoying Helen Drury's book at the moment, which has just come out. Oh, the mastery one, yes. Yeah. And we, uh, and I must say, I enjoyed um, skimming through your book. We only got it the day before yesterday. <laughs> um, I, I've skimmed through half of it, and I think it's a terrific contribution. I That's might, very kind. I might disagree with you on some of the conclusions you've drawn. Of course. Quotes, but that's, I mean, that's part of the game, and that's part of the fun. 
Uh, but I think it's a really terrific. I like the way you've structured it, yeah. uh, and, and uh, I think it'd be a tremendous contribution for for teachers. I think what would be really interesting would be someday to hear your thinking on um, the difference between maths as something that you need to know how to do, and maths as a collection of connected structures that you're building up. Yes, I think that's where some of the cognitive load stuff, which, which I do, you know, I have been thinking about that for a long time as well, because obviously it's associated with variation. Um, variation helps you um, enact some of the principles of cognitive load theory, um, but but there is a, a, a sense I get from that literature and that research that maths in the end is all about getting kids to do, to remember how to do things. And it's a worry to me because I don't think that that's what maths is. Mathematics is a discipline. It's a, it's a way of thinking. It's a, an epistemology, an ontology. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a way of being. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, uh, and I, I, I could talk for hours on this, but just just to say, the, my reading of cognitive load theory is it's it's useful to make sure kids have as much capacity to think about the right things as possible. That that's what I kind of yeah, take yeah. from it. It's about creating conditions in the mm -hmm. classroom, in the presentation of materials, in the way we speak to kids, just to make sure that their limited working memory capacity is attending to the right as much as we can direct it to the right thing so that's why for me when i heard about variation theory and started really getting into that i thought it fits perfectly with mm -hmm. cognitive load theory because it it's all well mm -hmm. and, it's all well and good creating this extra space in working memory but unless kids are attending to the right thing we're wasting our time whereas if you can marry the two things together create this capacity and get them focusing on the right thing then it's just it's win-win for me so that that's yeah. where i see the two okay. things kind but of I, interacting but i would put forward the notion, the conjecture that the capacity is a function of the connectedness of the domain that you're you're currently in. Yes, I would so, agree with that. So if I have lots and lots of rich interconnections, then I'm getting and, and a reasonable brain speed pro processing time, then I'm getting lots of, of ideas and, and ways of thinking and, um, and uh, objects of thinking coming into my um, attention, um, whereas if, if the domain that I'm working in is fragmented for me, then I, so when I'm depending on literally memory, um, that, uh, which requires uh, specific actions in order to access that memory. So that's, that's the big thing about memory. It's not, it's not memory that's the issue. It's what, how you access. Yes. Um, it, it was demonstrated that people have it's possible to trigger people electronically, electrically, to experience things they've experienced in the past. But the question is, how do, how can you help them access something that they've experienced in the past? So, yeah. so, so the issue, the issue is all about access, not about storing. Yes, I agree. And this is this is why, again, the, the kind of third wheel for this for me is I was fortunate to speak to, to Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, and I've been very influenced by their work about making learning desirably difficult for students. And for me, this is where things mm -hmm. like interleaving come into play. So mm -hmm. the maths mm -hmm. doesn't become this, right, today we're doing decimals, tomorrow we're doing fractions, yep. then we're doing algebra. Yep, yep. That showing how maths is one big subject and then starting to make those connections, because you yep. need them, because otherwise, as you say, like, 
like kids are going kids are going through school thinking maths is 150 different topics and rules yep. that they need to remember instead of making these connections so okay. i think i think it all what again what i tried to do in the book was to to show how i use all these different mm. things to try and make maths the connected thing it needs to be but give kids the best chance of of learning it yep. all, if, if that makes yep. sense yep. Yeah, no, but that's sense. the challenge yep. yeah. <laughs> anyway i have it's quarter to one oh. <laughs> yes i have taken okay. up far too much of your time so just just to wrap up i just wanted to say well firstly a huge thank you for for giving up your time and appearing on the show i, I must say whenever i so i've been doing this podcast for over two years now you've been our most requested guests by a lot by a long shot and this is and this is people on twitter this is people i meet at conferences and so on and i've been i've just been nervous about about asking you and then when i, when I bumped into john i thought now's the time to now's the time to do it i've been revising for ages like it's been preparing for an exam ready for this but hopefully i've just scraped through but it's been it's well, been look, a pleasure look, i want to say this when we when i first well, i think when i first um, was in a session of yours i was swept away by yeah. by your articulateness by your insight and your observations well and so they're trying to setting up the the, the the tasks for teachers here's a here's a question type here's an exercise layout type what can you put into this type and send it in to me and we'll collect them and i mean they're just brilliant ideas about communication and development and 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 uh, networking teachers purposefully and that sort of thing absolutely brilliant oh well that's yeah. that's very that's very kind but th thank you so much for, i'll say for your time today and and for just for the wonderful work you've done you, you, your books your research papers and every time i'm lucky enough to hear you speak i, I always learn so much and and i know people are going to learn loads from this conversation so so john and Anne, thank you so much thank you thank you So there you have it. There was my interview with Anne Watson and John Mason. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Now, flipping heck, where on earth do you start with the takeaways from a conversation like that, talking to two absolute legends of mathematics education? I could probably do a takeaway longer than the actual interview itself, but I just thought I'd hone in on a couple of key things that have really got me thinking following my conversation with Anne and John. The first is that my way of taking a very small part of the principle of variation theory is in the examples and practice questions I give to my students. And as I discussed it in the conversation with Anne and John, if you're looking to make a start with this, and I'd strongly recommend you do, because as I talk about in the book, and I've talked about on this podcast many a time, my choice of examples was flipping awful. And now, I mean, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm an expert at, at all, but I've spent many, many hours trying to put together sequences of questions. So as Anne said, we don't just treat this as 10 questions. We see is it as a single sequence containing 10 elements and getting kids to see the bigger picture and appreciate the mathematical structure of an exercise. Now, I find that difficult to do. But the advice I give to teachers when they start, and it's the advice that I started with myself, is just to try and come up with two connected examples to give to kids, either as a worked example or as practice questions. And then once you've gone through the worked example or practice questions, then turn your attention back to the structure. What's the same? What's different? How could we have predicted 
the answer from the second question based on what we know from the first question. Just getting kids to be reflective, make conjectures, expect things, and start to study the, start to consider this deeper structure has just made a world of difference. So just that little takeaway there. If you're brand new to this, as I was, just try and pick two connected examples to come up with. Next time you're doing adding fractions, sharing in a ratio, solving equations, whatever it could be, two examples that are connected in a certain way and just bring the conversation back to those connections. It makes a world of difference. It certainly, it certainly did for me anyway. Um, so in chapter seven of my book, um, as I say, I give my take on um, on variation theory um, with regard to minimally different examples in intelligent practice. But I'll tell you what, um, early on in the conversation um, with Anne and John there, we started to talk a little bit about direct instruction. And it's been a recurring theme in this podcast, the battle between direct and explicit instruction versus inquiry-based teaching. And, and, and as regular listeners will know, whoever I talk to, I come away with my head spinning. I think I've got it sorted. Then I speak to Andrew Blair, my head spinning. Then I speak to Chris Bolton, I've got it sorted again. Then my head's spinning again. And it was interesting um, just, just speaking to Anne there about direct instruction. And it, it got me thinking, and this could be the stupidest thing in the world, and I've not had time to fully process this. But say, for example, that um, you are teaching finding fractions of an amount. And I use, um, I use this example in the book. Um, say I do to uh, an example problem pair, which is a strategy I use for presenting worked examples where my board is split into two. I do a worked example on the left and then there's a mathematically similar example for students to try on the right. So imagine I introduce finding fractions of an amount using an example problem pair and then I give students the um, intelligently varied sequence of questions on finding fractions of an amount that I use in the book. And um, so this will be ones where the students will be asked to find a fifth of 30, then it will be two fifths of 30, and then it will be um, two fifths of 60, and something stays the same and something varies each time. Now, what that got me thinking about is that Direct instruction is almost the vehicle that enables kids to appreciate and benefit from the varied practice. So let, let me tell you what, what I mean by that, or at least what I think I mean by that, because I've not fully got my head around it. Without the direct instruction, so without the skill and the technique to find the fraction of an amount, so to find two-fifths of 30 or whatever it is, students can't then access the sequence of questions that then enables them to recognize the deeper structure. Because one of two things is gonna happen. They're either going to simply not be able to answer the logical sequence of questions because they simply can't find two fifths of 30 or whatever it is. Or what's perhaps more likely is all their working memory and all their attention is gonna be so bogged down on doing, trying to actually find, okay, what's one fifth of 30 now? How do I find two fifths of 30? What was the method? What do I do? Do I divide by this? Do I times by this? All their attention and working memory capacity is consumed by that, that they have simply nothing left to take a step back and attend to what is changing, what's staying the same and appreciate the structure. So I think for me, direct instruction is a key component of variation theory to get the most out of it because it provides kids with the tools that enable them to then better appreciate the deep mathematical structure behind an intelligently varied sequence of examples. As I say, I've only just kind of struck upon this. I don't know whether it's profound, obvious, or just plain wrong, but I just thought I'd chuck that in the mix there. I'm going to keep, keep pondering that for a bit. 
And the other thing I wanted to talk about is when I asked John and Anne about, the problem I've got now is I used to have too much variation going on. There was just random examples left, right and center. And now I've got the danger of almost too little variation and kids actually spotting patterns and it taking them away from the actual activity. So I, I gave the example of the expanding double brackets where if you hold X plus one the same and you then just have the, the second bracket as X plus two, then X plus three, then X plus four, then X plus five. Once kids have done a couple of them, they spot the pattern so they can just fill it in without even referring it back to the bracket. But then... Anne and John, as ever, just came up with just a brilliant suggestion that I feel stupid now for not spotting this. Just having a break in the pattern. That's all it takes. So I have five that follow the sequence so kids can, can spot the pattern, get the confidence up. And then a break in the pattern. So I jump from X plus one, X plus four to X plus one, X plus 11. Can kids then have to then do what um, Anne and John refer to as go across the grain, relate the actual answer to the question that it comes from instead of just continuing a pattern? And John's uh, SVG grids, which I will uh, link to in the show notes, are brilliant for this. It's a really good example of effective use of technology. It's great for brackets, but there's a load of other ones in there, and I'll link to those, and I strongly suggest you have a play around with those. Um, next thing I wanted to think about, <laughs> I warn you, it's going to be a long takeaway, this, um, is questioning. And I really like the advice of choosing one style of question or type of question or question stem and using it a lot until kids get familiar with it. So we talked about what's the same, what's different. And that's a really good one because it's really versatile. And Anne made the point that that's all well and good, but then where does it go from there? What's the follow-up to that, which is fundamentally important. Um, one that I like to, to use, um, and again, I find this is, this is really versatile, is give me a different question that gives the same answer. I love that, because you can use that with anything. So imagine you're doing sharing in a ratio. So you've split, I don't know, 20 pounds into the ratio two to three. Now this, this is putting me on the spot. And you get in from that, oh God, what's that What's that gonna give you? What, whatever 20 pound in the ratio two to three. So I'm gonna work this out live here. So you've got five parts, each part's worth uh, four pounds. So you're gonna get eight to 12. Well, that would have been embarrassing. So eight pounds to 12 pound is your answer. So that would just be to teach that however you want and then say to students, right, I want you to come up with another question that gives that same answer. So then can you see how we're now thinking about structure? We're thinking about what, what's, what's going on behind the scenes here. And the beauty of that is you can use that on a lesson with ratio. Next, next day, you might be teaching adding fractions. So you've got two thirds plus one quarter equals whatever. I'm not gonna put myself on the spot and try and figure that out. Get an answer to that. Okay, can you give me another question? That gives the same answer to that and I just really like that as a question stem and I like the idea of, of choosing one and just doing that well consistently a lot of times exposing to that a lot of times and then flipping it on its head and saying to students what question do you think I'm going to ask next what question I'm going to ask you to think about this and that's when I think we get our kids to be the reflective learners to take interest in the mathematical structure that we need them to be so I thought that was great advice from, from John and Anne and um, we're, we're nearly there next thing I took away from this visualize your lesson I love this I love this and um, because I, I've been there myself I write a lesson plan and I think this is going to be brilliant. And then it's an absolute disaster. And there's, of course, there's no way you can predict exactly what's going to happen. But you can better prepare yourself by visualizing it. So I think John gave the example of you're writing a lesson plan, working groups. 
But what does that actually look like? What? Are, how are you going to get the kids in the groups? How big are the groups going to be? What's your instruction going to be to get kids in those groups? Visualize yourself saying it. Visualize the kids reacting. And you'll probably spot a problem with it. Go through this example is another one. That'll be a thing in my lesson plan. Uh, worked example. But what are the words I'm going to say? Are the kids talking? Are the kids not talking? How am I explaining it? Now, you'll know if you've read my book or listened to this podcast, I'm obsessed with my presentation of worked examples now. I use silent teacher a lot, annotation, a show call. But unless I can visualize myself doing that, that could all fall apart when it comes to the actual example itself. And then a classic for me, an absolute classic, and I've put this in my lesson plan for years. In this section of the lesson, I'll be walking around and helping students. What the flipping heck does that mean? What does helping students mean? Does it mean I'll be offering support? Does it mean I'll be asking them questions? If so, what questions? Does it mean I'll be giving them the answers? How can they access the answers? How can they check if they're right or wrong? Does it mean if a child's stuck, I will help them straight away? Or will I say, what could you do if you're stuck? Who could you ask? And so on. It doesn't matter how I do it, but what matters is, have I considered it? Because, and Dylan William always says this, and this is why I really like diagnostic questions, it enables you to do your planning before the lesson, as opposed to doing all your planning and all your thinking in the heat of the moment when tons of other stuff is going on. So what is that? What is each moment of the lesson going to look like? Visualize yourself doing it. I think that is such sound advice. And then finally, what an answer Anne gave to that question when I asked, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Speak to your condition. I've never heard that before. But the more I think about it, it is absolutely true in, in many walks of life, but in, in particular, when we think about teaching, and I can only kind of look at myself for this, I only appreciate some of these things now. And like I've been doing this podcast for over two years now. If I did these interviews 10 years ago or five years ago or even two years ago, I don't think I would have learned half the things that I've learned from my guests because I wasn't ready for them. I hadn't experienced all the things I needed to with my students. I hadn't made mistakes. I hadn't seen for myself what works and what doesn't work. I'm a great believer in, in failure being a good thing and as long as you learn from it and take something away from it. So the perhaps the only reason I could have learned all that I've learned from my guests is because I'm ready to learn, because I've been through a lot of stuff to kind of get here. And I'll tell you what, that makes me optimistic for the future as well because I'm thinking, what else am I missing? What else am I not ready to learn, which my guests have already told me about? And I've just selectively filtered it out or took it the wrong way because I am not at that moment in my career or my life or my thinking where I'm ready to learn from it now. So, <laughs> I mean, this is going to be good for my download figures because I'm thinking these podcasts, maybe revisit them every couple of years. Have a listen to Chris Bolton again. Have a listen to Joe Morgan again, Bruno Reddy, Dylan William again, because a year Two years down the line, you might get something different about it because it speaks to your condition. I flipping love that. Absolutely brilliant. So I'm going to shut up now because I've gone, I've gone on for long, but I hope you understand why. I just had so much to take away from the wisdom of, of Anne and John.
So all that remains for me to do is to once again thank Anne and John for their time, their experience, their generosity. It was an absolute delight of mine to speak to them. It's one ticked off the bucket list, I tell you. Um, absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, my loyal listener, for keeping on listening to these. Um, people see them as CPD on the move. I'm certainly learning so much. And it means the world to me to hear that people enjoy these podcasts and that you're learning from them. Uh, two little request from me if you enjoy these podcasts and you haven't already just give them a little rating on itunes it just helps spread the word of these podcasts out to other people and if you've read my book and you enjoyed it and you've got a spare second just to give it a quick review on amazon again it's just one of those things that helps boost it up the rankings get gets the word out to people and i'll be back with more absolutely amazing guests in the near future so thanks for listening you take care of yourselves and bye for now